And now, broadcasting live from the restaurant at the end of the universe, this is the history of the Atlantic world. Canary Wars, episode 1.6 of the History of the Atlantic World podcast. I am Jesse Wiest, and thank you for listening. And wow, the penultimate episode of Rise of the Conquistadors. I can hardly believe it, to be honest. Um, but after this one, we've only got one more episode to go, and then we are on to our second series. And uh, what a bittersweet feeling that is going to be for me. Um... I mean, let me tell you, I am definitely an Americanist, um, and while I've, but I've really, really been enjoying uh, learning a lot more about the the foundations of the Atlantic world, uh, which really do start in Europe and Africa. Um, but I am chomping at the bit to get started at our second series, People of the Sun, where we're going to cross the Atlantic and discuss the pre-Columbian Americas. Um, but for now. Um, we're going to return to, you know, one of my new loves, the Canary Islands, um, where by the mid-15th century, um, we have men from Castile and Portugal who are willing to risk their fortunes and their lives in attempts at conquest and uh, at capturing slaves. Um, and the money that can be made from this means that a rivalry begins to develop between these two nations. Um, now, for the Portuguese, uh, and really the Castilians too, but uh, the, the Canaries were an obsession. Um, it was the one missing piece of the uh, Portuguese of the newly created Atlantic Empire. For the Castilians, uh, the Canaries were the the crux of their push into the African trade, into the African trade. And so, really, Castile and Portugal uh, go into this first colonial war, or wars, um, risking all the power and the wealth associated with this newly created overseas empire. Uh, there's a lot at stake. And with that said, if you compare that to what's at stake for the native islanders for the Canaries, the Guanche, uh, for them, far more was at stake. Um, so, with that said, as a brief introduction, let us make like the Guanche and Guatatitoaba, a word on the Grand Canary which means a gathering together of the people to a feast. Well, I hope you brought snacks. Now, before we dive into the material, though, I need to ask uh, you for a couple of minutes of your time uh, to ask for your help. Um, and there's basically two really 
easy and effective ways that you can pitch into the show. Um, first, I'd like to get as many listeners as possible. And so if you could, please take a few minutes um, if you can, to write a written review for the podcast on iTunes if you're enjoying it. It doesn't even, frankly, matter that much to uh, what you write, but the act of doing so uh, triggers mechanisms within the algorithms that uh, govern what podcasts get promoted. And I don't know about you, but I think this podcast is freaking amazing. And if you feel the same way, uh, I'd really like to thank you so much for taking the time to just write a few brief words as a review on iTunes for the show. Um, That way, as many people as possible get to listen along on this journey through time with us. And in addition, while all the episodes of the podcast um, will always be free, they also do cost me a decent chunk of change uh, to produce, to do the research, and uh, to produce each episode, as well as to take time off work, frankly, uh, just to, to do the show. And in addition, it costs me a little bit of money to host the shows online. So if you are able to uh, to help finance the show, you, are, you can do so um, for as little as $1 per month at Patreon. And if you go to Patreon, you can uh, find us there at Atlantic World Podcast, or um, uh, there's a really easy link you can just click on the SoundCloud page where I host the site. Um, now, what's really great um, about Patreon, like I said, is you can help out for as little as a dollar per month, and that would basically translate into about a dollar or maybe a dollar and a little bit of change per show. And for the amount of content that each show is kind of turning out to be, uh, that's a really great value. Anyway, thank you, and I really appreciate your support. Um, now, one last piece of information, I guess, uh, or a couple pe- last pieces. If you uh, want to find us on social media, you can do that as well for updates. Um, Atlantic World Podcast on Facebook. Um, you can uh, you can search for us there at Atlantic World History. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, that's at Atlantic fourteen ninety two. And uh, if you want. Um, they're not the greatest quality maps uh, in the world, uh, but I've got a few maps and images for some of the different episodes um, on my Instagram site, which you can find me there at Atlantic World Podcast. Anyway, uh, thank you for your time and for suffering through this little bit of shameless self-promotion. On to the show. Um, Now, let us return then to where we left off on the Canary Islands in the aftermath of the final Norman conquests of Jean de Bethencourt. Now, his partially successful conquest of the Canaries resulted, if you can remember, in the European domination of Lanzarote, Fuerteventura, and Hero, uh, leaving Gomera, Tenerife, the Gran Canaria, and La Palma uh, unconquered. And if you don't mind for today's episode, um, we're going to be using the Spanish pronunciation of the islands rather than, say, the French or the Portuguese, and if for no other reason than our main source will be Abreu de Galindo, uh, who is the Spanish chronicler and author of the discovery and conquest of the Canary Islands. Now, at any rate, uh, the historian Felipe Fernandez Armesto says that uh, these conquests Uh, quote, were registered against native populations diminished and enfeebled by years of depredations by slavers and would-be conquistadors, unquote. And they were accomplished basically through subterfuge. Now, the remaining Canarian islands were much more formidable opponents. Uh, Tenerife, Granaria, La Palma, and Gomera all successfully defied numerous attempts at conquest by Europeans during the 15th century. Neither guile nor intimidation 
was able to win the conquistadors any more of the islands. Now, after Bethencourt's return to Europe in 1414, there were numerous contenders for possession of the Canaries, and they all disputed their rights to the conquest. Now, Jean de Bethencourt left his nephew, uh, Mason de Bethencourt, in charge uh, after he left, and, and Mason governed the islands for some time uh, with the approbation of the natives, who obeyed him in every respect as they had done before his uncle, whose return with a powerful force they expected daily. But when Mason de Bethencourt heard of his death, he changed his conduct towards the natives, for he now considered himself as sole lord and commander of the islands, and began to govern them with more absolute authority than either he or his uncle had hitherto done. Well, maybe that's right. That's uh, Abreu de Galindo uh, writing those words. He's a Spanish source. The manuscript uh, that he wrote languished actually in obscurity um, for centuries in a monastery on the island of La Palma, and it was discovered in the 1700s. Um, but Galindo himself authored the text text, uh, maybe in the late 1400s or the early 1500s, and he did so with the accounts, uh, from the accounts of men who still lived on the island, uh, uh, or at least with their help, and who had participated in the conquest, and in addition from clerical records on the island. Um, the Archbishopric of the Canaries was originally established in 1408. Um, and so I don't think Abreu de Galindo is uh, as biased as, say, our old friend Zarara, but we need to remember here that the Spanish were very interested in justifying their conquest. Now, that doesn't mean Galindo isn't telling the truth. Maceo de Bethencourt may very well have been acting much more dictatorial towards the Guanche after his uncle's demise. But it is unlikely that the younger Bethencourt was mistreating the natives uh, because they realized that Jean de Bethencourt was dead. And thus... Um, they may have just seized the opportunity to revolt, hoping to defeat the Europeans. Um, you know, and they might have very well believed that uh, Messio de Bethencourt's power rested on a shallow foundation. I mean, it was uncertain whether Europe would be providing uh, reinforcements with uh, the elder Bethencourt deceased. Now, Messio de Bethencourt, according to Galindo, suspected <clears throat> the natives of some bad design against him in consequence of which he treated them with still greater harshness and severity, falsely supposing that such conduct would be the most effectual means to keep them in obedience. In the meantime, he made several descents upon the unconquered islands, merely for the sake of making prisoners whom he sent to Spain to be sold for slaves. Now, so I think it's possible, too, that Bethencourt may have been uh, more harsh simply because the Guanche might have realized um, these things for, like, if they had example of Jean de Bethencourt's death. Um, they might have also had knowledge that Bethencourt's, uh, you know, friendship and protection, uh, supposed friendship and protection from Castilian slavers was a lie, and that Bethencourt was really interested in providing just enough friendship and protection to the Guanche as far as it meant that he would be the one profiting from their enslavement, not just the Spanish. Now, one final thing to keep in mind is that because of all of that, 
Um, Jean de Bethencourt and any other European conquistadors or would-be warlords on the Canaries, uh, none of them ever really had any good intentions. Obviously, the Castilians don't either. And so there could very well have not have been any change at all in the relationship between Bethencourt uh, and the Guanche uh, and um, when Jean de Bethencourt leaves and Maceo de Bethencourt uh, takes over and then again when Jean de Bethencourt dies uh, and the Guanche find out about that. Um, and Galindo could simply just start reporting the bad things that the conquistadors were doing at that point, but had been doing under the entirety of both of their command and say, well, it wasn't happening before. Now, I do think whatever the, the, the facts were, uh, it's clearly likely that the relationship was deteriorating, probably because the Guanche were becoming more aware of Bethencourt's true relationship with uh, other European slavers. But I'm also a little wary of Galindo's explanation that suddenly there was some great shift in policy, um, if for no other reason than that later in the text... Um, Galindo makes clear at a couple of points that he, or at least <clears throat> some of the conquistadors he interviews, hold Bethencourt to be kind of a, a really a great figure, a great man. Um, with, dare I say, uh, you know, almost, you know, close to supernatural ability as a conqueror, and whom later conquistadors should and do aspire to be more like. Um, he, he's, he's really their hero. Now, as we briefly discussed way back at the end of episode 1.2, The End of Fortune, this was the backdrop for the intervention of the Catholic monarchs in Spain, and with their blessing, one of the most powerful Spanish noble families whose wealth was born out of trading in slaves, the Parazas, based in Seville, they sprang into action. Hernan Peraza, the patriarch of the family, was the son of a conquistador who had personally gone to the Canaries. And while there, captured and carried back to Spain a Guanche ruler named Guanamir and his wife, Tinga Guafafea. And in doing so, he obtained a grant to the conquest of the islands. Now, with investments from other powerful merchants in Seville, who, mind you, also, by right of these investments, also obtained some right to the conquest of the islands, Peraza fitted out five caravels, um, and he put in command of these uh, one Pedro Barba de Campos, and sent this private army to the Canaries with orders to, quote, purchase the islands, unquote. Now, as you might imagine, when uh, the when Bethencourt uh, saw the ships, um, that led to Pedro Barba and his forces being hindered from landing. And um, from now on, I think I'm just going to call Bethencourt uh, Bethencourt, not uh, Maceo de Bethencourt. Um, I guess for Jean de Bethencourt is dead by this time, and second of which, uh, uh, Galindo keeps referring to him in the Spanish Mason de Bethencourt, and it's annoying to keep remembering to change that, and I also apologize for, I think I referred to him as Mason de Bethencourt earlier. Um, okay, well, that aside. Bethencourt drew up his forces onto the shore to oppose the landing of the Castilians. So 
Pedro Barba did not attempt a forceful landing, as he saw it would occasion much bloodshed. But still, his numbers, or at least, or at the very least, his artillery, meant that the diplomatic solution reached afterwards included Bethencourt's return to Spain, where he would legally fight for his claim and would be cleared from the accusation laid to his charge, which the Spanish had used as pretext for the invasion. Bethencourt saw the writing on the wall, that's for sure, and while in Spain, sold the lands to the Parazas. And this happened in 1418, and he promptly sailed back towards France. Now, Pedro Barba, for his part, used this as an opportunity to make several attempts to subdue the rest of the islands, which all proved unsuccessful. Galindo tells us, in fact, that Pedro Barba began to repent his having taken so painful and unprofitable a charge as the government of these islands. Now that makes Pedro Barba the first of today's conquistador, of the first of the conquistadors, excuse me, in today's episode, who will find great folly in his decision to go to the Canaries. Well, I guess maybe technically the second. Maceo de Bethencourt, who was probably drinking sour grapes on his way back to France. Um, and I say that because, uh, as we also discussed at the end of episode 1.2, Bethencourt did not go straight to France. He stopped in Portugal. And while there, he sold the Canary Islands again. And this time to the Portuguese Infante, the Dom Henrique. And in exchange, Bethencourt received lands on the Madeiras, which is where he retired to, and his decision to do that will end up having major consequences, that is, sell the islands again. His decision to stay on the Madeiras rather than France will have major com consequences for his life, at any rate. And that, this all, to me, sums up why studying history is so cool. And we can talk about broad ideas about the past, giant historical concepts, uh, industrialization, for example, or the, or if I wanted to go back farther, the Neolithic Revolution, and things like that do matter an awful lot. But individual decisions matter too. Um, so please remember that, I guess, from this, if nothing else. Now, according to the authors of Foundations of the Portuguese Empire, 1415 to 1580, who are their names being Bailey Diffie and George Winius, the lordship of the Canary Islands was actually a lot more complex than that. They write that Bethencourt only definitively sold Lanzarote and Fuerteventura to the Castilian Count of Nibla and may have kept the rights to Hero for himself. Meanwhile, Juan II, the King of Castile, gave the rights to the unconquered islands to Alonso de las Casas, who passed these rights down to his descendants. Since Bethencourt also later sold the rights again, um, this is even made more complex, and, and, and that none of this might have even mattered as far as the rivalry between Spain and uh, Portugal, because Henrique absolutely took the view that any island not occupied by Christians was absolutely open to conquest. And now, I'm not trying to confuse you with that confusing bit of Spanish noble family jibber-jabber. Um, I'm sorry, I am a little bit. But I, I think knowing how confusing the web of European legal ownership could be 
on the Canary Islands and how, how it was, how many claims are really out there. Um, I think that helps explain a lot of what happens over the coming uh, over the coming years. And needless to say, though, many of Peraza's investors gave up after Pedro Barba's bad experience in 1430, and they sold their shares back to Guillaume de Peraza, thinking probably that their money was better spent elsewhere. And that left Peraza fully clear to most of the title in the Canaries. And with this as justification, he and his men sailed to Madeira and managed to capture Maceo de, de Bethencourt. Peraza was furious that Bethencourt had sold the islands to Henrique, in a double cross, essentially, and now carried him as prisoner alongside Peraza's new expedition to conquer the islands. Peraza was apparently eager and ambitious of doing something worthy of his ancestors, so he fitted out three ships at Seville with 300 men at arms and 200 bowmen. His forces disembarked at La Palma to conquer it and immediately marched into the country. Galindo says that the country there was exceedingly high and rocky, and since Peraza's forces were unaccustomed to such rough ways, they were greatly harassed by the natives, who being very agile, leapt from rock to rock with great ease, and galled the Spaniards in those narrow passes, in such a manner as obliged them to retreat. Peraza rallied his men to repulse the enemy, and in doing so was struck with so mighty a blow from a stone he was killed on the spot. His troops, disheartened so much they fled, re-embarked, after having suffered a considerable loss, carrying the body of their je dead general as they retreated. The cost of the Peraza's family's attacks on the Canaries are said to have exceeded 10,000 ducats, as well as the life of Guillen, whose death on the Canaries would be followed by many other Spanish and Portuguese knights. His life was immortalized in verse, in fact, and the songs are even still sung in the Canaries today, and here I have a bit of it, thankfully translated into English. I'm going to actually have a sip of my coffee here before it gets cold. Um, pardon me. Now, weep, ladies, weep, if God give you grace, for Guillen Peraza, who left in that place, the flower now withered that bloomed in his face. Guillen Peraza, Guillen Peraza, where is your shield and where is your lance? All is undone by fatal mischance. Well, so it goes. Easy come, easy go. Peraza's sister was married to Diego Don Herrera. Herrera, excuse me. And after Guillen Peraza died, and his father died a, a little while after that as well, Diego de Herrera attempted to make good on the claim. But it would be quite some time before that would be settled. Um, like I said, even a world where the forces of history itself seem to compel us in a direction, individual actions matter. Now, back in Portugal, meanwhile, the Dom Henrique was not interested in hearing about the Peraza's family's claims to the Canaries. After all, was he, was not he, the sole ruler of Africa? Something granted to him? 
by both his brother the king and the pope and thus God himself. In fact, it is Henry's biographer, Peter Russell, who went so far as to say that the Canaries were a Henrican obsession. Zerara tells us the Infant sent a very large expedition against the Canary Islands for the purpose in 1424, um, uh, with the purpose, Zerara assures us, of showing the people there the road to the holy faith. It's pretty clear, however, that the actual reason for Henrique's interest is that Castilian dominance of the Canary Islands, which lay 250 miles farther south um, of Madeira, meant that his entire enterprise in Guinea was threatened. And this is not to mention the profits from Orkil, dragon's blood, and of course slaves that lay in the conquest of the Canaries themselves, and in the potential uh, for additional profits by transforming the more fertile lands, uh, islands, um, into vast estates dedicated to sugar production. Now, Peter Russell says this of the Infant's attempt, quote, it was an ambition far beyond any resources he could command, unquote. Nevertheless, the expedition sailed under the command of one Fernando de Castro. The Portuguese sources, though, are almost completely silent on the attempt. Without further explanation, after stating the expedition was sent, Zerara goes on to other topics. Russell writes, quote, Zerara evidently could not quite bring himself to omit any reference at all to his heroic history of the prince. To, but to what had clearly been the total failure of a major military effort undertaken in the archipelago under Henry's direction in 1424. But so because it was a failure equally, he could not bring himself to admit outright that his hero had masterminded what seemed to have been a humiliating affair, unquote. Now, 10 years after the attack, the Bishop of Burgos noted that the Portuguese failed in their attempt to conquer the Canaries, leaving them remaining in a state of freedom and savagery. The 16th century Portuguese historian João de Barros adds that de Castro attacked the Grand Canary with no less than 2,500 infantrymen, 120 horsemen, and... Uh, further adds that the Portuguese royal account books show that the crown contributed no fewer than 39,000 gold dobras toward the cost of transporting the expedition to its destination. The total cost must have been astronomical, and much of it was probably financed by Henry directly, via his command of the treasury of the Order of Christ. Now, obviously, it benefited Henry to be able to wage private wars with public money. But what is the motivation of the Portuguese crown to let him do that exactly? Well, by letting Henry engage in war on the Canary Islands, as if it were his own private affair, the Portuguese crown could minimize risk of more open war with Castile. So that leaves us with the question of what happened to the Portuguese expedition. Well, we don't know precisely except for that the survivors returned without fanfare at all. And I have a pretty strong inclination that for many of them, it went about as well as it had for Guillen Peraza. And in the end, Fernando de Castro obviously abandoned the island and returned to Portugal, finding the resistance too great. Now, the traditional song written about Guillen Peraza makes warfare on the Canary Islands to, be, to seem like a romantic place 
steeped in chivalry. Fernandez Armesto writes, though, that in reality, the wars on the Canaries were squalid affairs, waged against Neolithic savages who were scarcely fit opponents for a knight. So it was very difficult for 15th century European knights to wrap their minds around the idea of basically of having to admit defeat and being driven off by pagan islanders armed with only Stone Age weapons. And, for example, Zerara understood that writing about this risked ridicule. Now, however spectacular the failure of the 1424 expedition was, it did not prevent the Portuguese from trying again a decade later. After Guillen Peraza imprisoned Bethencourt, Henrique was able to use this to bolster the Portuguese legal claims to the islands. Henrique ordered Bethencourt liberated and brought to Portugal and used this in part as justification for writing to the Pope and asking for his claims on the island to be granted, which they were. Castile, of course, protested this bull vigorously, and in fact, the ult- ultimately, the Pope would reverse himself a few years later and grant the lordship of the islands back to Castile. But at any rate, back to the 1434 Portuguese invasion. And, and we don't even know for certain which island the Fidalgos landed on. Historians believe it was probably Tenerife. A bit of detail of the expedition is revealed in the Portuguese petition sent to the Pope uh, in 1436. It began by describing the Guanches' untamed savages living in a state of paganism without religion, law, or civility as if they were beasts. The document then goes on to state what a great success um, the expedition had been since it resulted in 400 Christian converts as a result of the attack. Now, which I should note that the conquistadors used convert and slave basically as synonyms. Now, after telling the Pope it was a success, The Portuguese then went on to admit it was actually a failure. The expedition turned back after failing to conquer the island, uh, and the Portuguese were full of excuses. For one thing, the islanders would not confront the invaders face-to-face in the manner of civilized soldiers, but had instead retired to inaccessible caves where they defended themselves with an inhuman ferocity. In fact, according to the Portuguese commander, this inhuman resistance was precisely the reason why the expedition had run out of food and other supplies and had been forced to return to Portugal. Now, the Portuguese, though, did not make unrelenting war on all of the islands, or at least on all of the different tribes on all of the islands. But They did play a constant role in the life of the Canary Islands in one way or another after 1434. And by 1445, they had become trading partners and allies with one or two of the four total tribes on La Gomera. And that enabled them, according to Peter Russell, to secure some sort of permanent foothold there in circumstances which are obscure. Zerara tells us that Henry once more, quote, began to make ready his ships to return to the conquest, unquote, of the Canaries in 1446. In part, his motivation came from the fact that the Castilian Peraza family recorded a partially successful conquest on the island of Gomera themselves, um, which added yet another spark um, to the pile of growing tensions between Castile and Portugal. Now, further... The Infante uh, requested and received from his brother, uh, Dom Pedro the King, to give him a letter 
uh, forbidding all these subjects of these realms from daring to go to the Canary Islands or to make war or treat of merchandise without the command of said infant. And beside, besides this, he was privileged to enjoy a fifth of whatever should be brought from there. You know, Zerara tells us that Antum Goncalvas was made chief captain and went and looked for possession of the island and remained there some time animating its inhabitants to the service and obedience of his lord. Now, animating, if that isn't a special way of describing taking control, then I don't know what is, though Zororus also tells us that Guncalvus did his animating, quote, with such benignity and sweetness that in a very brief space the infant's virtue was confessed of all. Unquote. The Guanche fishermen, which he and the men of his caravel encountered upon their arrival, would have disagreed, I believe, since upon Goncalva's arrival, his first order of business was to set in order their fishery, and of the fish they found in a very great abundance. He did this by almost killing the fishermen, terrorizing them into retreating, wounding two, smashing the place up, and stealing all the fish that they could not cut in pieces with their arms with no less anger than they would have done to the retreating fishermen if they could have reached them. Now, the caravel sent to the Canaries under Alvaro Dornelis and Entau Goncalves um, succeeded in instituting Portuguese rule on Lancerot and on half of Gomera with this reign of terror that they instituted, smashing up fisheries and whatnot. Gomera also, though, contained a small Castilian garrison put ashore earlier by Fernand Peraza, and the Portuguese and the Castilian rivalry that resulted um, enabled the opposing Guanche tribes of that island to play the Europeans off one another, and they benefited quite a bit from this trade. And, and in fact, things, while previously um, Gomerans had been, or different tribes of Gomerans often went to war with each other, um, they started living a lot more peacefully with one another for a time, uh, a consequence of the benefits of trade that uh, uh, the economy seemed to be improving so much. The mere fact um, that Henrique uh, was a much more uh, potentially dangerous lord in the Canaries than Bethancourt had been, um, gave the Guanche a lot more power in their relationship with Castilian traders and vice versa with Portuguese traders. Now, that didn't mean the alliances between Europeans and Guanche was a, just a totally just a peace fest. Um, for their part, the Portuguese and the Castilians found that their Gomeran allies were quite willing to help them carry out razias or slave raids against the inhabitants of other pagan-held islands. Now, Zerara actually gives us a description of one such raid, uh, that conducted by Alvaro Dornelles. Dornelles stayed some time in the Canaries, out of shame of returning without any booty, and after reconnoitering on the, car on the caravel around the islands, looking for a suitable place to find safe harbor, he landed on the island of Gomera, where he spoke with the chief men on the island and asked them, on behalf of Dom Henrique, if they would give him some assistance to go to the island of Palma and to make some captures. And with good will, they granted him as much as he required. And so taking some of those Canarians to aid them, they reached a port of the, of the island of Palma where they landed and at once concealed themselves in a valley, because in, it was in the daytime and they feared to be discovered. 
But as soon as night fell, they began to journey through the land without any guide or sure path by which to direct them to any certain part until they arrived at a place where they heard the barking of dogs and knew by this that they were nigh to an uninhabited spot. Now, quote, now that we are already sure of that we seek, said some, let us rest here in this valley, and very early, God permitting, we shall go against them, for our now going might bring to us rather injury than benefit. And so they reposed there until they saw it was time to attack their foes, and then they charged them with such vigor that in a very brief space they captured twenty. Dorneus was hardly the only Portuguese conquistador to visit the Canary Islands, yet this is the only description of such a raid which Zerara leaves us. However, I think he leaves clues as to why the others, and almost certainly perhaps less successful other expeditions, were left out of Zerara's chronicle. And this happens in his description of what happens after Dorneus's successful initial capture. Quote, Since the Canarians gave them much trouble in their attempts to deliver their relations and friends, and also to avenge others who were left for dead, Dorneus said they were hard-pressed to escape from that valley. Now, in addition to military conquest um, and trade, the Portuguese attempted to settle the Canary Islands as well. Um, this was in part Henrique's uh, motivation for attempting to gain control of the islands already having been conquered by Bethencourt. It sure didn't matter to Henry that Bethencourt had also sold the islands to the Spanish. He began investing heavily into the newly developing um, sugar trade, sugar industry and uh, in the Canaries, and the Portuguese in general simply ignored the otherwise internationally accepted sovereignty of the Castilian crown of the islands. Now, after purchasing, after the Portuguese had purchased the islands, um, Antio Goncalves uh, founded a base on Gomera. And after that, he went to Lancerot um, with orders to make himself captain and governor of the island. Goncalves went around bullying the mostly Castilian settlers uh, that from now on uh, told them that Portuguese law was going to be in effect. Portuguese currency was going to be used, and while Zerara asserts that Goncalves was a benign governor on Lanzarote, he can't have been all that popular because uh, just a few years after his arrival, the settlers drive him off and him and his garrison out for good. Now, obviously, the Goncalves expedition to terrorize and take over uh, Lanzarote did not go over well in Castile. And the mood of the Castilian crowd worsened significantly once they learned that when their diplomatic envoy brought this up to the Portuguese crown, that the occupation of Lanzarote was a clear breach of terms of the peace treaties that existed between the two countries. He found the Portuguese response unrepentant and even aggressive. Afterwards, the relationship between the two predatory states grew increasingly fraught during the 15th century. In 1450, no fewer than eight Portuguese caravels tried to occupy La Gomera and Gran Canaria again, setting fire to property, murdering a number of islanders, and robbing not only them, but also some Andalusian merchants who were in the archipelago on business. The next year, in response, the Castilians sent reinforcements to La Gomera, 
but these were intercepted and captured at sea by Portuguese privateers working for Henry, who proceeded to seize all the goods, gold, victuals, and bombards from the Castilians, a fact only reported after the Castilian commander eventually reached Lanzarote empty-handed and wearing only a cloak. Now, in addition in 1451, Henrique sent five Portuguese caravels to try and reconquer Lanzarote. He landed 350 men-at-arms who failed to retake the island, though in revenge proceeded to sack the other Castilian-held islands and Castilian ships they encountered. Fuerteventura was hit the hardest. According to the Castilian King John IV, who reported that the Portuguese had instructed their caravels to attack and sack any ships from our said kingdoms, voyaging to our said islands, and to make prisoner all persons found aboard them, and to take them to any Moorish territory to be sold there, so that no one would dare either to travel to the islands or to send supplies there by which means the said prince, Henrique, who he was talking about, would be able to seize, quick, quickly seize control of them. All these things the Portuguese have done, alleging that they have made their captures in accordance with the rules governing a just war. Now, the conflict raged on the high seas, obviously, as well, uh, where two Spanish caravels carried no more than 25 men-at-arms were captured by an armada uh, in 1451 belonging to Dom Henrique. In that same year, other vessels which sailed from Seville were captured by the Portuguese fleet of five caravels which Henrique had sent to attack Lanzarote, like I said. And in fact, one source and victim of this attack wrote that, quote, the said five caravels cruised around all the other islands and robbed any vessels of Seville which they found, and on their return robbed this witness. In 1452, Juan II complained that, uh, to Alfonso V that armed men on eight Portuguese caravels had stolen cattle and other animals and had robbed the merchants of the Canaries who were Castilian subjects. The Spanish continued to protest this piracy and banditry throughout the year when the conflict over the ownership of the Canaries took another turn. Fernand Peraza, the undoubted lord of the Canaries, according to most of Europe, died, and possession of the islands fell to his daughter, Inez Peraza, and her husband, Diego Garcia de Herrera. The situation was boiling. The two countries were closer and closer to war, and by 1454, King Juan II of Castile wrote to Alfonso V of Portugal to demand redress for the treatment of a Genoese merchant who resided in Seville, and whose caravel, flying under the Castilian flag, was captured by one of Henrique's privateers named Palencio, and in addition to stealing everything, including the ship, had the merchant's hands cut off. Now, Castile managed to reassert control of Lanzarote by 1454, and by 1455, the Portuguese had probably withdrawn from La Gomera as well. Catamasto visited in that year and says that the island fell under the lordship of the Castilian Diego Garcia de Herrera, and it seems unlikely that Catamasto would omit to mention a Portuguese colony there. But despite these Castilian successes, the Portuguese remained undeterred. Henrique and his brother, the king, were mostly interested in hearing just one thing from Castile, that the Castilians were going to cede to the Portuguese that the Canary Islands fell under their jurisdiction. Well, fat chance of that happening. 
In fact, the escalating conflict probably would have turned into open warfare right then and there in the 1450s. But in 1454, Juan II of Spain died. His successor, Enrique IV of Castile, manifested indifference in regards to his colonial claims in the Canaries, and tensions began to cool. In fact, the next year, in 1455, he was more than happy to sell the rights to the Grand Canary, Tenerife, and Palma to a couple of Portuguese counts. Now, Enrique's sale wasn't actually legal, even by Castilian law, since the Herrara Las Casas family definitively owned the rights uh, under, under Castilian law, and not the crown. And while this would later be settled in court, as far as the Castilians were concerned, Enrique's decision to, per to put personal profit above national interest meant that the Portuguese had once again obtained an advantage in the Canaries only a few years after being ousted. According to the Spanish chronicler Alfonso de la Palencia, this forced Enrique IV to suffer the humiliation of asking the king of Portugal not to molest his Castilian subjects, and when they went to Guinea to trade, if they paid the fifth of their cargoes to Alfonso, to leave them alone, essentially, if they paid their taxes. Despite all the efforts of the Portuguese, Castilian efforts, though, continued to grow on the Canaries. But it still wasn't until the mid-1440s that uh, Fernand Peraza, the head of the Las Casas Peraza house, felt secure enough in his possession of Lanzarote, Fuerteventura, and Hero that he began to give uh, more uh, attention and more and put more investments into extending his conquest. He founded a Spanish base on Gomera, um, but even then, it was still, like I said, wasn't until 1455 that the Portuguese counterforce at Gomera was removed. Um, but anyway, after this initial success in Gomera, the Peraza, though, uh, they simply shut themselves up in their crude and comfortless keep of stone, says Galindo. They lived in mutual fear with their vassals, the still relatively numerous people of Gomera, and a population which would remain large until the 1480s. The Peraza didn't really encourage any colonization at the lower social levels. And in fact, their methods of exploitation didn't even really much disturb the traditional economy, which was centered on the production of products like hides and cheeses. Um, and, and that makes Gomera very different than, than how the other uh, conquered islands operate, which have a, a, a far lower uh, uh, population. Um, and greater uh, native population, I should say, and a, and a greater European population. Now, at any rate, now this shadow war that is developing between Castile and Portugal is also spilling into Africa, of course. Um, Diago Gomez is a Portuguese merchant who receives a monopoly in Guinea, and we're going to be talking about him a lot more next episode, is captured and confiscated. Um, well, excuse me, he captures and confiscates the richly laden caravel and cargo of a Castilian captain named de Prado. And the Castilians weren't just in Guinea to trade either. A later decree by King Alfonso issued in 1469 spoke of the deaths, evil robberies, and injuried and injuries committed by Castilians against Portuguese subjects in Guinea. Now, open warfare finally broke out 
1474. That is when Alfonso V challenged Ferdinand and Isabella for the crown of Castile. The main action of the war took place on land in northern Castile, but this was accompanied by so-called small war on the seas. The Spanish monarchs, that is to say Ferdinand and Isabella, were open-handed with licenses for voyages of piracy or carriage of contraband for those willing to traverse to Africa to break the Portuguese monopoly. Castile had quite a bit of success in the Cape Verde Islands. The local Portuguese there rebelled in 1475 and 76 in, in the Cape Verde Islands, and Antonio de Noli, who controlled the trade on the Cape Verde Islands, became a turncoat defecting from the Portuguese and deserting to Castile. Both Portuguese and Spanish crowns wished to control the Canaries for their own sakes. The land represented a valuable source of wealth, since sugar and dye were so valuable, were such valuable products. But in addition, the islands were excellent bases for connecting the crowns to the mines of Ethiopia, as Ferdinand called Africa, and especially for the Spanish, since they didn't have any other island colonies as the Portuguese did. As the sugar industry grew within Europe in the 15th century, the largest and most fertile of the Canary Islands were increasingly coveted by Europeans. And, and this is a pivotal point, because the causes belly of the war is going to be something very different. Now, that uh, causes belly is, something, is because of something that happened way back in 1455. Now, that's when Juana, the sister of Alfonso V, who ruled Portugal, got married to Enrique IV, who ruled Castile. Now, this is neither the first nor the last time of many intermarriages between the two royal families of these countries. And so the problem wasn't in the marriage in and of itself. Instead, the problem seems to have stemmed from, what, from the thoughts of many Castilians had, what they had on Juana's love life. Now, according to Diffian Winaeus, Juana allegedly participated in the freedoms the king allowed himself and his courtiers, which is to say that she was sleeping with them. Her enemies used this to cast doubt on the paternity of her daughter, who was also named Juana, and who was heir to the Castilian throne. Now, in and of itself, this was more than just juicy gossip, because if the younger Juana was not Enrique's daughter, well, then maybe somebody else could be on the throne when he died. So, as a result of this sort of thinking, the reign of Enrique IV was basically one of continual civil war in Spain, and when he died in 1474, the more popular, but not directly in line to the throne, Isabella was immediately declared queen over Juana. Now, as you might imagine, the Portuguese were not too pleased about this, and in response, the Portuguese king, Afonso V, entered Spain with an army. The next spring, in 1475, he married Juana, and the two proceeded to call themselves king and queen of Castile, Leon, and Portugal. Even though, according to Diffian Winaeus, the marriage was not in accordance with canonical laws, and the papacy never granted the necessary dispensation. Now, Castile, uh, excuse me, Isabella, the other queen of Castile, decided to respond by waging economic warfare against Portuguese interests. She directed her nobles, her royal authorities, and other subjects in a letter 
uh, written in August of 1475, that since it was so well known that her predecessors had made conquests in Africa and Guinea and had collected the fifth from all merchandise that came from there until the Portuguese got involved, we all remember that, remember? She forbid anyone to go to Africa and Guinea without special permission from her tax collectors that she appointed under penalty of death and loss of all goods and was thereby attempting to withhold as much Spanish capital from Portuguese trade routes as possible. And simultaneously, she encouraged Castilian privateers to capture Portuguese ships, basically telling her merchants that, hey, don't worry about losing any income from not trading with the Portuguese. You can make that money back by attacking them. Now, not a lot of Spanish mariners were very happy about this royal decision, mind you, um, before Isabella put this law into effect, they had been mostly been trading without royal consent from her, obviously, and without respecting the Portuguese monopoly either. Um, so Portugal and Spain become arrayed uh, against each other in this uh, domestic and colonial war that would last for four the next four years, but um, not all, all of their subjects are really into it that much um, at any rate. Now, on land, the war operated mostly with border raids by forces of both countries, ultimately climaxing at the Battle of Toro in March of 1476. There, Afonso V and Prince Zhao opposed Ferdinand of Aragon. And while both sides claimed victory, Afonso and Zhao were definitely the losers. They were forced to abandon Spain. Afonso traveled to France to solicit aid there, and meanwhile the Castilians and the Portuguese also fought at sea, both on the Canaries and in Guinea. Now, we have records of two or three Castilian expeditions to Guinea in 1476, and which brought back slaves to Spain, and these might not have even really been going on with the consent of Queen Isabella, um, which shows us just how difficult it was for these various European powers to try to control the trade in Africa. Again, now the most successful of the Castilian expeditions to Guinea was quite large. It was 20 or 30 caravels, and it sailed under the command of Carlos de Valera in 1476. He raided 13 different islands, um, plundered his way down the Cape Verdes, he captured Africans, attacked Portuguese settlements, and even took a Genoan merchant named Antonio de Noli, for whom some Genoan merchants agreed to pay 1,000 doblas within four months if he were safety re safely returned. And Denoli wasn't the only person uh, being taken illegally. Um, and while Valera's expedition was sponsored by Spain, he ended up being condemned by some of the actions that he and his men had taken during the attacks. Now, um, the Spanish historian Palencia, who chronicled the Valeria's expedition, believed that the reason the Portuguese were able to wage war in Morocco and navigate like lords through the Sea of Guinea was only by the abandonment and indolence of the Castilians. Palencia and other Castilian hidalgos, like Valera, were enraged that the insolence of the Portuguese rose so high that they were in the habit of putting to death some of the Castilians who they'd caught beyond the Canaries with cruel torture cutting off their legs and hands in order to instill perpetual terror in the rest. In addition, by 1476, the Portuguese had made four separate attempts to take the Canary Islands from the Castilians, causing grave anarchy there. 
Now, these were all the reasons for which King, the king, Don Ferdinand, sent a strong fleet of Andalusians with orders to break the Portuguese arrogance and to humble the pride of the Portuguese. And so, and also, he tells us, offhandedly, because Guinea was full of riches which had inspired them. And so, those thirty ships were prepared at Seville. Many of the sailors had been recruited, were already accustomed to warlike expeditions against the Portuguese. And when the fleet set out, it did not do what the king asked. It did not go south down into Guinea. Instead, it stopped in North Africa and captured 120 Azanagwe people. And returning these unarmed captives back to Seville, Palencia does specifically tells us this is not what the king had ordered, and in fact has specifically told them not to make captives of the inhabitants of Guinea as well, but merely to wage war against the Portuguese. But, you know, fat chance of that happening, a war where the people fighting it aren't out to get rich. Yeah, sure, okay. Now, and, and what I'm getting at here really is the European monarch's inability to gain control of the African trade. Um, now, we... Valeria, um, excuse me, Valeria, but let's continue. Valeria, thus emboldened by his successful capture, um, fitted out three other caravels and put into the coast of Guinea with the intention of loading slaves. The Castilians made their way all the way down to the Gambia River, and they encountered someone they call the King of Guinea, a title that speaks to their, I think, relative ignorance in comparison to the Portuguese, who by the 1470s have begun to really better understand African politics. But at any rate, the king they meet, through his frequent traffic with the Portuguese, um, bar for whom he normally bartered his prisoners of war, believed that the ships were Portuguese. And after signals of peace made by both sides, the king and some of his men entered into the first caravel and inquired who commanded it. And the reply, in Portuguese, mind you, confirmed him of his error. He agreed to barter the slaves for brass rings, small leather shields, clothes of diverse colors, and other objects, and the trade was welcome with the men posing as Portuguese traders. To celebrate the exchanges, the king caused one calf and sheep to be brought for the feast of that day, and he accepted the hospitality of De Valero. And on the following day, the king appeared again on the beach, surrounded by a great multitude, and mounted to the ship with his brothers and close friends, and the most powerful of his people. After this feast was ended, De Valero invited him to visit the interior of the ship, and that is where he sprang his trap. The treacherous mariners closed the hatchways, and having armed themselves, secured 140 nobles of splendid physique. And if you're like me, you might be thinking, you know, this kind of puts into question a little bit John Thornton's thesis. I mean, sure, this sure looks like European naval superior superiority and a little trickery. Um enabled the Spanish to capture basically the entire political elite of, a, of, a, of an African polity in a single day and without combat. And that is true, but that is also not entirely where this story ends. Because on the high seas, the Gambian king began to complain of the cruel trick. He again inquired who owned the ships. They told him, truthfully now, the Spaniards. He wished to know whether they obeyed any king. And when he was told they obeyed a most noble one, he expressed his confidence that they would free him from such inquietus captivity. Inquietus, I am told, is a word which means grossly unfair or morally wrong. Upon arrival at the Spanish city of Palos, the conquistadors wished to force him to walk in a crowd amongst the other slaves, but he resisted. He said they should take him either by dragging by a rope, 
or on horseback, because his misfortune must be either terrible or dignified. One of the conquistadors was moved by this resolution of royal spirit, or at least spurred by the thought of a great ransom, and ordered a horse to be brought. This the king nimbly mounted, and going before the other slaves began to march with a majestic air, and in the meeting that followed, the Spanish king, Don Ferdinand, commanded after this that the Gambian king be immediately restored to his native land. Now, it wasn't all roses for the king of Gambia, because the conquistadors who had captured him and his countrymen managed to delay the execution of the king's order, so that he was still enslaved for months of unhappy, unhappy captivity, which was long enough for the Spanish to sell his brothers and other relatives as slaves. And if you're like me, you're thinking, well, yes, yeah, sure, the king got away, but it sure seems like the Spanish were still able to nearly completely chop off the political head of an African state with relative ease thanks to the caravels. But we're still not at the end of this story, and it's about to get a little more complicated. Now, Palencia tells us that the savage king maintained a certain regal authority during his captivity, and he displayed dignity in his countenance, gravity in his speech, prudence in conduct, and courage in adversity on finally reaching his homeland. He exercised such cunning in order to avenge himself on his treacherous oppressors that in spite of the distrust with which they traveled, he succeeded in securing some and keeping them as hostages for as many other of his relations. Now, Palencia does not give us the number, which means either the number was unknown to him, I would think, or possibly that it was embarrassingly high. And it's hard to say, though, and either way, it's hard to say, I think, from this encounter that the Spanish demonstrated all that great control over African politics. Uh, now, I should mention, and sorry, I'm getting a little carried away, uh, uh, but at any rate, um, this isn't the end of De Valero's raiding in Africa. Now, um, he eventually came back uh, with 500 more captives after continuing to raid. Um, he seized two caravels, um, and at any rate, um, he made him quite a wealthy man. Now, the Castilians sent out three or four more expeditions the next year, though these were smaller. But in 1478, they sent another massive fleet, 35 vessels, even bigger than Valeros. And this sailed under the command of Pedro de Covides. And you might think that an armada of this size would have had great success as well. <clears throat> well, no. The Portuguese actually managed to capture the entire fleet and the large cargo of gold, which was on board, and this ultimately resulted in an embarrassing exchange of prisoners for the Castilians, where the Castilian sailors were given back to Castile in exchange for the Portugal's Portuguese soldiers, which had been captured at the Battle of Toro. Now, the Castilians remained undoubted, however, uh, undaunted, excuse me, can't even read my own writing. And in 1479, they sent another expedition of 20 caravels to go to Guinea. But this, too, this one never returned. Now, the fate of these ships is not known, as the expedition is only mentioned once more, um, stating that the mariners had not returned a year after leaving. The fate of these sailors is unknown. They could have died 
uh, in a storm uh, or something like that. Um, but they also may have very well been killed by Africans or executed by the Portuguese if they were captured by them. Oh, we do know for a fact that by 1480, at the, at the least, Portuguese mariners were under specific orders that if they were to capture uh, ships of any people of Spain or any others without uh, further order and without trial, whatever, they were to throw the prisoners into the sea. Now, the war, though, ended around that time. Uh, the Treaty of Al Alcacovas was signed on September 4th, 1479, but it wasn't ratified until 1480 by both countries. And it's actually two treaties. Uh, one settled the matrimonial affairs between the two royal families, the Treaty of Las Tercias de Muera, unimportant for us. Um, the other, though, more important treaty, adjusted the rival claims between Portugal and Castile. Um, now, it gave Portugal the Azores and the Madeiras, the Cape Verde Islands, as well as lands discovered and to be discovered, found and to be found, and all the islands already discovered, which might be found and conquered from the Canary Islands beyond towards Guinea, excepting all the islands of Canary, conquered and to be con conquered, which remain in the Kingdom of Castile. Further, Portu uh, excuse me, Castile promised to forbid her subjects from sailing to Guinea without having Portuguese license, though we all know fully well that isn't going to be happening. And this finally settles the affairs between Castile and Spain on the Canaries. Now, before I get any more carried away about how the war had played out on the African coast or anything like that, we better turn our attention back to the Canaries. Um, but don't worry our next and final episode of Rise of the Conquistadors, we will be diving deep into the Portuguese voyages that will eventually round Africa and get to India, and and, and, the, and the Castilian uh, voyages that are kind of trying to catch up, uh, kind of a 15th, uh, 15th century uh, space race, if you will. But for now, and for the rest of this episode, if we can, we need to switch perspective just a little bit. Um... I don't want to think quite so much about the Hidalgos of Spain and the Fidalgos of Portugal, if we can, so that we can make a little bit of room to start thinking about the Guanche. Now, obviously, the war between Portugal and Spain was also waged on the Canary Islands. And as we continue, we're going to be unable to separate ourselves completely from the perspective of the conquistadors, obviously. Um, we're going to rely heavily on Abreu de Galindo's manuscript, The History of the Discovery and Conquest of the Canary Islands. We, but and that's, we don't have sources written by any guanche, at least any that have survived through the centuries. But in many ways, the Luso-Castilian Wars of the 15th century were all focused on the Canary Islands. Sure, royal lineages played a role in the largest conflict, that of 1475 to 79. Remember, the battles between the two countries started in the Canaries way back in the 1420s, when Henrique sends the first of at least four separate expeditions to the Canary Islands. And the, Portugal, and the conflict between these two countries gave the Guanche a number of advantages in their dealings with the Europeans. Now, the Guanche were well aware of the fact that Basically, all of the European powers were out to kill and enslave them in order to steal their land. And so the fact that they are able to help play the Portuguese and Spanish off one another um, is a great tool for them. And they really need that help 
Because one thing that will become clear and apparent to us from diving into the works of Abreu de Galindo is that disease begins playing a very noticeable role in the story. Because once the conflict between Spain and Portugal is settled, the Spanish are able to pour resources into the conquest of the Canaries, which the Guanche simply cannot match. The demographic consequences of disease that ravaged Canarian society throughout the 15th century just make it impossible. Now, the early European chroniclers speak of Guanche armies in the thousands. Galindo describes Guanche resistors in the late 1500s as numbering in the hundreds. Now, I don't know whether or not disease was affecting the Guanche before the 15th century. It isn't really mentioned much. So, But without a doubt, a number of diseases visit the Canary Islands for the first time as a result of contact with Europeans. Now, Galindo mentions this in several spots. Um, but the total, the, 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 the whole picture is obviously a lot more complex than what he writes about. And, I mean, he, neither he nor anybody else in the 15th century really has any sort of good understanding of how disease affects human beings. Um, but we know that the Spanish and Portuguese also brought a number of different diseases. The plague, of course, was extremely deadly, and even the, the flu can kill people. Um, that too originated in Eurasia or Africa at some point. The most important disease, though, that was introduced by Europe to the Canary Islands would have probably been smallpox. Smallpox isn't really a problem in the modern world, which is, I think, a pretty interesting story in itself. But up until the mid-20th century, in fact, smallpox might have been the possibly the greatest single biological microbiological killer of mankind. Um, it exists in four different strains, three of which are deadly. In Africa, Asia, and Europe, uh, the populations there, which are areas of the world where smallpox antibodies existed within the human genome by the, in the 15th century because of their relationship with the disease. Um, at any rate, the most during that time, the most common strain of smallpox killed on average about 50% of the people it infected. The deadliest strain killed upwards of 90% of the infected uh, victims. Of course, we don't have any records of guanche mortality rates, but for tribes or villages who contracted smallpox, the mortality rates would have been much higher, probably. Now, the other great biological killer of man was is the mosquito, and which has the benefit of being able to serve as an incubator for a number of deadly or debilitating diseases, such as malaria, called the intermittent fever at this uh, point in time by Europeans, and, and um, also the very deadly yellow fever. Now, both of these d diseases originate in sub-Saharan Africa. That leaves us with a couple unanswered questions. It is possible, first, that the same mosquitoes which carried these diseases lived on the Canary Islands before the arrival of Europeans. And if so, it is then quite possible that disease warfare worked both ways on the Canaries, just as it did on mainland Africa where Europeans got sick and died if they stayed too long and got bitten by too many bugs. Now, on the other hand, if these mosquitoes were not living in the Canary Islands before Europeans, which I think is more likely, then this would have been an additional disease burden placed upon Guanche populations um, on the Canaries once Portuguese caravels returning from Africa began depositing their cargoes along with mosquitoes and the diseases they carried with them into the Canary Islands. Now, at any rate, I, I just think that's something uh, 
very important that we need to keep in mind is the disease here because now we're going to get back into Galindo. Um, and he's going to start us up actually before the the uh, war in in the 1470s. He's going to pick us back up at 1461, which is uh, almost 20 years after the attempted conquests of the islands of the Peraza, just one year after the death of the Infante Dom Henrique. Now this is the year that the Castilian Hidalgo, Diego de Herrera, a descendant of Guillen Peraza, declared himself master of the Gran Canaria. Now, Galindo tells us that Herrera, and in fact the Peraza family, had previously attempted numerous descents onto the unconquered islands before, but was met with the most obstinate resistance. So finding that nothing could be done there by force, he resolved to try to do what he could to do with pacifist Pacific measures. Pacific measures, excuse me. Pacific measures. Uh, of course, Galindo is not referring to the ocean, but to the philosophy of pacifism. Or, you know, not trying to murder people. Really a revolutionary idea amongst the Spanish nobility at this time. Now, at any rate, Herrera and his men reached the islands, and with the help of a translator, convinced the Guanche of Gran Canaria that they came with no hostile intention. And so they were permitted to come ashore unarmed. The natives here had the upper hand because they spotted the ships and sounded the alarm such that by the time the Spanish reached the shore, the Guanche had already come down to the port in great numbers. A gift-giving ceremony followed. Galindo tells us that the Spanish both gave and received presents. And after that, the two Guanartines, or rulers, of the two provinces of the island met with Herrera. Herrera then took possession of the island on the 16th of August, 1461, with a ceremony, of which it is probable the natives understood not the meaning. Well then, Diego returned with his fleet after that to Lanzarote, highly pleased with the success of his expedition. Now, the ceremony that Galindo is talking about here is a process called the requimiendo, or the requirement. This was developed something. Uh, this was something developed um, a legal process during the centuries of warfare um, in Christian and Muslim Spain, and was designed to let conquered Muslims, or frankly, also conquered Christians and Jews who were living in previously Muslim-held lands, to learn about the new rules, which were being imposed on them by the new Spanish rulers. Now, needless to say, this tool was far less effective as a method of communicating all of this on the Canary Islands, and, well, later in the Americas at that, for, that, for that point, than it had been in Spain. But also, needless to say, the fact that the Guanche, and later the Americans, did not understand what the hell the Spanish were babbling at them in this ceremony, this fact did not stop the Spanish from using the requimiendo as the legal framework for their attempted conquests. Now, Galindo reminds us that there was some difference between Castile and Portugal concerning the Canaries, much of it stemming from Diego de Herrera's opposition of Don Henrique's armada, commanded by Antonio Goncalves. Herrera killed some of Goncalves' men when the Portuguese attempted to land. Now, much displeased, Henrique nonetheless alleged publicly that his design was only to convert the natives of the Catholic faith without bloodshed. And even after Henrique's death, 
the Portuguese continued sending caravels to the Canaries. Now, Galindo tells us that Don Fernandi, that Don Fernandi, Fernando, excuse me, brother to Don Alonso V, the King of Spain, I'm great with names, sent a fleet to Lanzarote in 1466. Though, just so you know, Galindo was pretty bad with dates. Now, the fleet was commanded by Diego de Silva, and like Antonio Goncalves before him, he too found Diego de Herrera ready with his forces to oppose his landing. So de Silva began to treat with Herrera. Neither of the men wished to reenact another amphibious invasion, with whatever unpredictable and violent results that might entail. Instead, Herrera entertained de Silva peacefully. Galindo tells us a vessel arrived shortly afterwards, letting the conquistadors know that the Castilians and the Portuguese had made peace. And so there really wasn't any need for conflict anyway. Now, I'm not exactly sure what was said, but sometime after the landing, de Silva married one of Herrera's daughters, receiving as dowry a third part of the revenues of Lanzarote and Fuerteventura. Now, Diego de Herrera, realized that with so many extra men on the island, meanwhile, this would be a great time to attack the Gran Canaria, which so often baffled all their previous attempts. Diego de Silva, his new son-in-law, agreed, and thus they accordingly embarked and arrived with their forces at the port of Gondo, on the south side of the island where they landed, being now so strong they thought it was no longer necessary to observe the caution and circumspection in their march into the country which they had done in former descents. And surely it was an intimidating sight. After all, these were knights and their retinues who were well-trained in warfare and intimidation, banners waving, trumpets blaring, as they marched the sound of armored horses and drums, the gleam of steel armor and weapons in the sun. A terrifying sight to behold. Galindo tells us the Guanche were constantly on the lookout since the Europeans first began their attempts against the island, and as soon as they discovered the ships, gathered together in vast numbers, and marched against the invaders with great resolution, not being in the least intimidated by their numbers. The Guanche defenders divided themselves into smaller bodies and attacked the Europeans on all sides, with such steadiness and courage that they obliged them to retreat. The place of the battle was very rocky and unequal, Galindo reports, so that the Europeans could reap but little advantage. The enemy by this time was also well-armed, for besides their own country weapons, which were by no means despicable, they had many others, which they had taken from the Europeans at different times of their incursions, and in the management of which they were become tolerably expert. But they annoyed the Europeans mostly with their sharp-pointed sticks or poles hardened in the fire, which they used both as darts and lances, which pierced the enemy's targets, and even went through the closest coats of mail. Even more dangerous was the Guanche use of the landscape. Whenever they drew the foe into a hollow place, they made great havoc by rolling huge stones down upon them from the neighboring precipices. This continued, Galindo tells us with the Europeans retreating until they came to a cave or some other sort of natural fortress near the seashore where they made a stand such that the natives could not attack them except with great disadvantage. Now things weren't looking very good 
though, for Herrera and his men. They had already sustained great loss in the engagement and the subsequent retreat, and considering that the entire force of the, align, of the island seemed to be aligned against them, he came up with a plan to divide the Guanche. In the night, he sent Diego de Silva with 200 men in three caravels to the other side of the island. The men landed at daybreak and proceeded to march around, basically undiscovered for a while before finally being spotted. The Canarians did not immediately attack, though. They waited for Diego de Silva to lead his men up a pass, and then after that set fire to the bushes at the pass, preventing the conquistadors from returning to their ships. So, Diego de Silva and his men also hold up in a fortress, this one built by the Guanche, and Galindo tells us one that was normally used for public functions, such as feasts on holidays and the execution of criminals, now, Diego de Silva and his men were holed up here for two days and nights without food or water, and the number of natives increased around the fortress, a situation that left them destitute of human resource and full of despair. But what happened next might surprise you. And if so, don't worry, because it was also pretty surprising to Diego de Silva. The Canarians did not starve the Europeans to death nor did they nearly starve them to death and then kill or enslave them once they were weakened by hunger. The Guanartim of Galdor instead sent one of his relatives to De Silva and his men. Her name was Maria Lafigue, and she had spent some time as a captive on Lancerot before being exchanged for a European prisoner later, and as a result of her captivity, Maria spoke two languages very well. Maria told the conquistadors that the natives intended to put them all to death that night that there was not the least prospect of their escaping, but by surrendering to her uncle, the Guanartim. The Europeans were easily persuaded of this, quite sensible considering their alternative fate. With the matter settled, the Guanartim and De Silva met and spoke, and after giving his word that the conquistadors would be safe, the Europeans delivered their arms to the natives and came out of the fortress. The Guanartim embraced De Silva and offered him tokens of friendship and compassion bringing him to the village of Galdar, and gave him and his troops both meat and drink. Once refreshed, the Guanartim and his men walked together with the Europeans to their ships. Upon their march they came to a steep precipice. The conquistadors suddenly began to suspect that the Guanche would hurl them off of it. Now the Canarians, Galindo tells us, were actually quite affronted by this accusation. The Guanartim made no reply to that. Instead, though, and told Diego de Silva to take hold of the skirt of his garment, and that he would personally lead him down. He likewise ordered his men to do the same for all the Europeans, and thus they all descended safe to the bottom. De Silva was at a loss to express his gratitude to the Guanartim, and who went on board made him a present of a gilt, of a gilt sword and a scarlet cloak, and to each of the Geiris, the nobles of Galdar, a fine musket. I hope that you, and myself as well, are able to take that to heart. It is always better to make friends than to defeat enemies. That's my word there at the end. De Silva and his men eventually returned to Herrera, who was greatly astonished. They could not conceive whence the barbarians had acquired such noble sentiments of valor and generosity. These sentiments did not stop the two men from attacking a second time. 
Now, after all, the Grand Canaria contained two separate political entities. Um, and De Silva, uh, despite getting that friendship, was just as rotten as any of the other conquistadors. They marched inland again and gave battle to the other tribe, and the Canarians in turn met them with great intrepidity. Good grief, I can't talk. A bloody battle ensued. This time, the natives were bested. Galindo says they were obliged to retreat, and in that many were killed or wounded on both sides. But the Europeans also took some prisoners, and among these was a chief named Menendira, whom Diego de Silva remembered seeing at Galdar, and mindful of what he owned him, went to Diego de Herrera and entreated to give him, give this man his liberty, which was done with no small amount of bitching by Herrera. De Silva gave Menendira many valuable presents, though, and sent him on his way. Now, after this, the Portuguese under de Silva were definitely ready to leave. They saw no prospect of speedily reducing the island, or of enduring a war in which they were likely to receive no advantage, and so begged their chief, de Silva, to allow them to return to Portugal. Herrera caught wind of the Portuguese troops murmuring, and thought it most expedient to make peace with the Gunnar team of Galdar, and return to Lanzarote. So they left, leaving the Gran Canary unconquered though they did bring back, Galindo tells us, a number, a great number of slaves of both sexes. Now, de Silva and the Portuguese were finished, but Diego de Herrera was undeterred. Sure, the reduction of Gran Canary by force might be impossible. After all, the Castilians under his command were little happier to remain on the Canaries than the Portuguese who just departed, but Herrera had a true conquistador spirit, mas aya. And if force wasn't going to work, then maybe a lie would bring him success. So he went aboard a caravel back to the Grand Canary, this time under the pretense of peace. He spoke with the Guanar team and the Fakags, or priests of the island, and convinced them that what the peaceful traders who came to the Grand Canaria really needed was a church for their stay. And so... Herrera, under pretense of having a place of worship for such, peace, uh, for such people, obtained from the natives the right to build this church. Instead, he built a fort. Herrera also obtained rights to all the orchilla weed which the island produced, in return paying only for the people's labor it took to gather it. During the construction of the fort, Herrera and the Guanche exchanged 12 prisoners, a ransom that ensured a peaceful construction process. And after this, Herrera left with the fort well furnished with ammunition and provisions and left a good garrison commanded by one Pedro Camida. Herrera left Camida orders that, quote, notwithstanding the treaty of peace, if a fair opportunity should offer of making himself master of the island, he should by no means neglect it, at the same time advising him, if possible, to divide the natives by fomenting quarrels and stirring up jealousies among them, so as to form a party in favor of the Europeans. After giving these honest and generous instructions, Herrera departed for Lanzarote, highly pleased with the success of this project, of which he hoped to reap the most agreeable fruits. Now, Herrera here, I think, demonstrates what is probably the greatest advantage that Europeans 
conquistadors had over the Guanche. And I, I think that's the fact that Port Spain and Portugal were predatory states born out of the Crusades. And this vast experience with conquest, I mean, hundreds of years of Fidalgos and Hidalgos coming up with plans, hatching conspiracies, ways to attack cities or villages, how to best plunder enemy territory, how to attack them in a number of ways, these ideas that maybe could only be thought up in places connected to these old world trade routes, which also enabled people to share ideas and technology over large spaces. And, and in Spain and Portugal, I think a lot of minds were, became very finely honed towards conquest because of that, those centuries in conflict between Christians and Muslims in the Mediterranean world. And this doesn't just amount to the use of siege engines and crossbows. I think it, it includes political machinations and tactics, which I don't know that the Guanche were fully prepared for. Because letting Diego de Herrera build a fort on the Gran Canaria was a, probably a terrible idea, obviously, in retrospect. But from the perspective of the people of Galdar, the quote-unquote this church that they thought was being built offered them more contact with European traders, and thus weapons, which would give them more power on the island in respect to their relationship with the other tribe on the island, called Telde, and also to enable to protect themselves better from the Europeans. Now, so, I don't want to oversell this advantage completely, because, first of all, because we're going to see that the Canarians are perfectly capable of duplicitous acts themselves, and secondly, because the Guanche are still uh, economically acting in their best interests, because they want this trade too. And what really does them in isn't bad decisions against the Spanish or anything like that. It's successive waves of disease that wreak havoc on Guanche populations and make it una them unable to keep up with the number of European conquistadors willing to assail them. But considering, with all that said, Herrera's orders to Pedro de Comida, I think it's safe to say that the Guanche here erred on letting him construct this supposed church. Now, Comida afterwards complied with Herrera's orders, and he quickly sought a proper opportunity to make himself master of the island. He sent out a number of slave raids, which afterwards caused the Canarians to complain to Comida, accusing him of privately sealing, seizing and concealing certain noble Canarians with a design to send them away far from the island. But if, when they found that Pedro Comida gave no ear to their complaints or showed the least inclination to redress their grievances, they departed and resolved to watch an opportunity instead to bring avenge, uh, to, to bring revenge on their oppressors. And not long after this time, some Spaniards went out carelessly of the fort, and the Canarians fell upon them, killing five. Comida in turn protested this to the Gairis, or the noble or chief men of the island. They in turn refused him any satisfaction. So Kamita left this meeting resolving to do himself justice by force, and this rekindled the flames of war anew between the two nations, to the no small effusion of blood. Galindo tells us that the Canarians realized now the error in having allowed the Spaniards to build this fort, which bid defiance to their united forces and was a very great scourge to them. And what a difference a fort makes. 
While previously the Canarians were, easily, were able to easily entrap the Europeans, now Kamita was able to attack the Guanche from relative safety. He ordered frequent sallies to carry off cattle, to take many of the native prisoners, and afterwards to retire to the fort, which always afforded them a convenient shelter after having committed their depredations. I think you could say that the Canarians were placed into a reactionary or defensive position as a result of the creation of the fort. Well, in response to that, they counterpunched. After a number of these raids, one of the marauding parties left the garrison and spotted some cattle. The natives drove some of the cattle secretly, as if it were by accident, and thus drew the Spanish a considerable distance from the fort into an ambush that had been prepared for them. There, another party of natives was posted in such a manner as to cut off their retreat to the fort, and on a signal concerted between these two groups, those in ambush suddenly fell upon Kamita's men and killed a great number of them, and the rest, who upon this fled towards the fort, fell into the hands of the other party, who killed some of them and took the others prisoners, so that not one escaped. Like all of the great European defeats on the Canaries, Galindo does not tell us the number of men on that marauding party. He does tell us that the Canarian captain of the ambush stripped the Europeans. His name was, uh, excuse me, Mananidra stripped the Europeans, the previously mentioned Menandira, excuse me, stripped the Europeans, both living and dead of their clothes, and he made one half of his men put on the Spanish clothing. He placed the other half secretly in ambush, very near the fort, and then he ordered some of the Canarians, in their own proper habits, to chase those dressed like Spaniards towards the fort. Pedro Camida and his men who remained there saw this pursuit, and when, and when they believed their party was worsted, worsted and sallied out to relieve their supposed countrymen, leaving the gates open. When the party of Canarians in ambush perceived this, they rushed into the fort, while the disguised Canarians fell upon the Spaniards and made them prisoners. After this, the fort of Gun... After this... Um, the fort, after the, in this way, the fort was taken, excuse me. And lest another garrison should be sent from Lancerote, they burned the wood of the fort and raised the walls to the ground. Now, that's a pretty incredible tale. I, I, worthy of a movie, even? I, I'm pretty sure I saw Mel Gibson do that exact same trick in Braveheart, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And if that doesn't convince you, it was disease that doomed the Guanche rather than some sort of European superiority at war, then I, I just don't know what will. Um, now, needless to say, when a fishing bark later brought news of the defeat to Europe, Europe was stunned. The Herrera and Peraza families were extremely grieved at finding their favorite project thus disconcerted. Good heavens, I do say yes, quite unfortunate. Yes. It's probably what they said, but not in a British accent. Now, it was also stunning to many Europeans that the prisoners were treated with gentleness and humanity. Further, Galindo tells us the incident manifestly showed what kind of people the Canarians were, and that they lacked neither courage nor conduct in war, such that it was hard to determine 
whether they were more subtle in contriving stratagems or obstinately courageous in the time of action. Now, the result of this was that many European settlers in the Canaries became every day more and more discontented and dissatisfied with Diego de Herrera. Now, for one thing, didn't he oblige them, contrary to their inclinations, to go upon these hazardous enterprises for so little purpose? When they heard about the fort being burned down, they, the, the settlers on the other islands, and the captivity of Pedro Camida, and what remained of his garrison, many lost all patience. I can imagine. Some of them moved to Madeira and got passage to Spain there, or got passage to Spain so they could redress their grievances in court. And, and during this time, while captive, Pedro Camida really shows what makes him a special conquistador. He strikes a deal with the Guanar teams of Gran Canaria, and it apparently convinces him that though enough that enough fault of the war lay on the Guanche, that he enables Diego de Herrera to retain possession of the rights of the Orquilla weed gathered on the island, and Camita and the other survivors would be exchanged for prisoners, which even included all of the Gran Canarian slaves on Lanzarote and Fuenteventura. Now, you might ask, how in the hell is Camita able to get all of the Gran Canarian slaves off Lanzarote and Fuenteventura? Well, remember, a number of the residents of the Canaries had left to Madeira or to go to Spain to complain about Camita, um, and to complain about Herrera, I should say. And during this time, while they're gone... Camita ordered some of his men to go to Lanzarote and round up all the Grand Canarian slaves of the masters who were in absent, who were absent, and sent them back to Grand Canaria. Needless to say, the other conquistadors were pretty pissed off about this, but Herrera himself, pleased as punch to retain rights to the Orquilla weed and the Grand Canaria, would not permit them so much as to return to the island. Ultimately, this is not concluded until Herrera was forced eventually to appear in court to defend himself against the accusations of the other conquistadors. And that is where Ferdinand and Isabella ruled that since he was, had been so far unable to add the three unconquered islands to the crown of Spain and had not made himself master of them by his own power, it was absolutely necessary that they take ownership of them. Now, obviously, the Herrera and Peraza families were by no means pleased with this proposal, but they did at least receive, in lieu of their rights to the conquest of Canaria, Tenerife, and Palma, that is, five million Maravedis and the title of the Count of Gomera for their eldest son. Now, Herrera's conquistadoring career actually does not end with this, um, he later went with his son-in-law to try his luck conquistadoring the enslaved and enslaving people on the African coast opposite of Lanzarote where uh, a castle called Mark Pequeño stood, which was under siege by Muslim forces. But, um, anyway, so um, he was a really great guy, I guess. But um, anyway, the Spanish obviously, despite um, uh, the Herrera Peraza family's inability to conquer the rest of the islands, the Spanish did not give up conquering, on conquering the Gran Canaria. But it wasn't until 1477 
when Ferdinand and Isabella sent out another large expedition. With orders now to rebuild the fort at Gondo, they went under the command of the awesomely named Don Juan Rayon. He commanded 930 um, men and horses, according to Galindo, and was well-armed. 900 men and 30 horses, I should say, excuse me. According to Galindo, is well-armed and provided for every necess- necessary uh, thing for such an enterprises. Now, Don Juan Rayon's first order of business was to rebuild the fort, which had been burnt to the ground and previously destroyed by the natives. So, upon disembarking, they pitched some sort of canopy or tent, and under this they erected an altar and performed a mass. This was performed by Don Juan Bermudez, the dean of Rubicon, a layman who was well-versed in the affairs of the Canary Islands, and who I mentioned this specifically, basically, so I can also mention you that he was Rayon's partner in the expedition. Now, after the mass, the force marched immediately towards Gondo, where the fort had been located, since Don Juan Rayon intended to camp there. Galinda tells us they did not march far when they were accosted by a woman in a Canarian dress, who asked them, in the Castilian language, whither they were going. They replied to Gondo, The woman told them it was a great distance and very dangerous with high precipices. But if they followed her a short distance, a much better path would be found with a continuous plain surface with a good stream of water and plenty of firewood. Now the men weighed this information in the offer. While they deliberated changing directions, the woman disappeared. The Don Juan Rayon was convinced it was none other than Santa Anna who had appeared before them in the dress, and so he took her advice. After the passage, they came to a place about a league from the water, and there began construction of a fortified camp with a stone wall, complete with a fortified magazine for their ammunition, stores, and provisions. Now, this is a pretty common trope in medieval Spanish writing. It, it happens constantly during the Reconquest, where conquistadors are aided by mysterious women who give them help or advice and then disappear. So I'm going to be on perfect honest. It's a little hard to say if that's actually what just happened. Um, maybe it did happen just like Galindo told us. Maybe Galindo made it up wholly out of cloth, um, adding in a popular Spanish myth of this saintly woman aiding the conquistadors. To give his narrative of the Spanish conquest a certain flavor, that of divine right. Or maybe Don Juan Rayon was right, and Santa Anna herself appeared, descending from the heavens to aid him. Or, maybe, the Spaniards came upon an unfortunate woman who was forced to give Juan Rayon directions, and then managed to escape. Whatever the reality of the situation on the ground was... The reason that Don Juan Rion and his forces were able to march across the Gran Canaria unmolested had far less to do with divine providence, I think, than microbiology. Galindo tells us disease was introduced to the island not long before the arrival of Rion's expedition. A few days before the arrival of Juan Rion, in fact, the Guanar team of Telde was carried off by the distemper that had also proved fatal to a great number of the natives. The state of affairs amongst the Guanche was such that the people of Telde had elected as Guanar team one of the Gairis of Galdar, in fact. And remember, Galdar and Telde are the two different tribes of Guanche which resided on the Grand Canary. So, obviously, this wasn't ideal, I'm sure, in the minds of most of the people of Telde. 
And in fact, this new Gwinnar team, a man named Duramas, didn't even really feel safe amongst his subjects in Telde and lived in Galdar after becoming king or Gwinnar team of Telde. Under the protection of his fellow countrymen, uh, rather than to live as a foreign ruler in Telde. Um, now, with that said, once the natives noticed the Spanish building houses on the island again, they started to lay aside their differences and united their forces to expel the invaders from the island. 2,000 well-armed Guanche were raised and marched toward the Spanish under the command of Duramas. Juan Rayon sent a messenger to tell them he had come to invite them to leave their heathen worship and to embrace Christianity, which if they accepted, their majesties would immediately take them under their protection, but on the contrary, if they refused this friendly invitation, they might be assured that the Spaniards would never desist till they had either put them to death or driven them all out of the island. A friendly invitation indeed. Galindo continues, the natives, either unwilling to abandon the religion of their ancestors or flushed with their former repeated successes against Bethencourt and Herrera, told the messenger that they would give Juan Rayon an answer the next day early in the morning. The general comprehended their meaning and accordingly prepared for battle. The Canarians made their first onset with all the fury of men whose liberty was at stake, being headed by their valiant chief Doramas, Tazate, and Adargoma. They were received with no less vigor by Juan Rayon and his men, who endeavored to break the enemy's ranks. But the Guanche made a most obstinate resistance, fighting like lions. The battle continued three hours, without any apparent advantage on either side, until at length Juan Rayon found his army beginning to give way in that part where they were attacked by the intrepid Adargoma. Rayon flew hither to support and encourage his troops, and singled out Adargoma, and charged him furiously, and wounded him so desperately in the thigh with his lance that he lay on the ground for dead. The Canarians, instead of being discouraged at the fall of their champion, were fired with fresh rage, falling on like incensed tigers, insomuch that it might be said that the conflict only then began. But this ardor of the Canarians, like the last blast of a furious tempest against a mighty oak which shakes to the very root, was not long before it spent itself, and was succeeded by a sensible abatement of vigor, and they soon after retired, but in good order, leaving behind them Adargoma as prisoner, and 300 men killed on the field of battle. Of the Spaniards, only seven were killed, 26 wounded. The battle of Guiniguada, as it has come down to us through history, was a rout. Galindo explains that this great, great inequity of loss must have been owing to the difference in weapons used in the engagement. For about that time, the Spaniards had learned the use of firearms. And moreover, the Canarians were much terrified at the sight of the horses, which on this occasion made their first appearance in Gran Canaria. Now, I'm actually pretty sure Galindo is wrong here about the horses. Though this might have been the largest number of cavalry ever seen by the Guanche on Gran Canary, I'm not sure he's 100% correct. Um... I, at any rate, uh, about the horses. I'm also not 100% sure he's correct 
about the reason for the victory. Uh, the earlier mentioned distemper and other diseases were dramatically decreasing the overall population and thus the number of fighting men on the Grenier on the Grand Canaria by as I think as much as 80 percent I, I want to say that 10,000 men not 2,000 would have been able to have been called upon in years past by the Guanar teams of Grand Canaria nevertheless the sound and power of the firearms and cavalry must have indeed been a pretty terrifying experience for the Guanch who fought at the battle I don't want to I don't want to understate that too much now whatever uh, the exact cocktail that enabled Don Juan Rayon and his men uh, to be victorious. Galinda reports that this was the last time the Guanche of Gran Canary would ever dare to face the Spaniards on open plains again, and thereafter were forced into the mountains. There, they did continue to engage the Spaniards, harassing them in their marches up the country, especially in the mountainous parts. But they were afraid to venture into the plain near the seashore on account of the enemy's cavalry. In the meantime, the Spaniards set about erecting a fort for their security. Those not employed in this work were set out in parties to bring in cattle and prisoners, and harassed the poor fishermen whose way of living obliged them to be near the sea, such that many of the Guanche came into the camp of mere necessity and embraced the Roman Catholic faith. And being baptized, they re received passports from the dean to protect them from being molested in their business by his soldiers. The Spanish afterwards looked at the, upon the island as good as reduced. Now, this isn't quite the end of the tale for Adragoma, the, uh, the noble who was wounded. But his wounds weren't so fatal after all. And his capture by the Spanish... Um, who realized what a potential ally Adragoma could be if he were converted to Christianity, um, ended up with them treating him very well, and so that he was induced to become a convert of their religion, learning its principles and the Castilian language. He was sent to Spain, and while learning all of this in Seville one day, was challenged to a wrestling match by a peasant from La Mancha, famous likewise for his skill in that exercise, according to Galindo. So, a local badass. Now, I'm telling you this also in part, I think it's pretty great, but this is really going to highlight the difference between um, Europeans who, I guess, are probably, you know, eating a lot of grain and everything and just wheat, bread, uh, stuff like that, not a lot of uh, good stuff in their diet, and and the Canarians, who's living a very different lifestyle, um, as herders and, and, and I think sometimes hunter-gatherers who are not farming, and uh, at any rate. Adragoma accepted the challenge and said to him, Brother, since we are to wrestle, it is necessary we drink first together. And taking a glass of wine, he said to the peasant, If you can, with both hands, prevent my carrying this glass of wine to my mouth and drinking it, or if you can cause me to spill one drop, then we will absolutely wrestle together. But if you cannot do this, I would advise that you return home. Now, Adragoma proceeded to do this to the amazement of many witnesses and to the local badass who attempted to prevent Adragoma from drinking, but in spite of his efforts could not. 
and then prudently took his advice and snuck off into the night. Now, all of that aside, Don Juan Rion's newfound grasp of power on the island was suddenly made very tenuous when he discovered 17 Portuguese caravels had landed on the other side of the island, well provided with soldiers, provisions, ammunition, and everything necessary for the voyage. Now, the Portuguese had also in that time made allies in the tribe of Galdar, the tribe opposite to the Spanish fort, and it was decided between the allies that the Portuguese would attack by sea while the Canarians would attack from land. Now, Juan Rion placed 200 men in ambush when he saw the ships approaching the fort behind certain hillocks, but since he did not do this apparently until the 17 ships were bearing down on the port, um, it was pretty lucky for him and the Spanish that there happened to be a surf breaking on the shore, which is not common in that place. Now, the Portuguese did not have enough boats to land more than 200 men at once. And since they did not know the size of the Spanish force, which was mostly hidden from sight, they boldly landed, drums beating, trumpets sounding, colors flying. But the surf was breaking uncommonly high and drove some of their boats in ashore while they were attempting to land their men. This prevented their going immediately back to the ships for more troops, and instead of instantly launching these boats that were thrown ashore by the surf, they began to run inland in pursuit of the small number of Spaniards they saw drawn up to oppose them in order to attack them and make them their prisoners. Now, Rayon, needless to say, was pretty pissed the fuck off about all of this. He resolved to avail himself of their bad conduct and to attack the Portuguese before they could receive a reinforcement from his ships. With this view, he ordered the 200 men in ambush to fall upon them in concert with the others, which they did with such impetuosity that they presently drove the handful of Portuguese back to their boats in the greatest confusion. But in the hurry of launching and crowding, they were overset, forced back onto the beach by the surf, and staved to pieces, so that very few of those men who landed had the good fortune to escape. Now, staved to pieces, I think, is a kind of an odd term. I looked it up. One definition of stave is to break something by forcing it inward or piercing it roughly. Well, just so you know, that's how they died. Now, Galindo continues. The Portuguese on board the caravels, seeing all that passed, without being able to give the least assistance to their comrades on account of the violence of the surf, which continued to increase more and more, and being apprehensive of a storm arising, weighed anchor and stood out to sea. In the meantime, the Canarians had taken a great viewpoint of the port and the Spanish fort from a nearby mountain, where, observing everything to be quiet in the Spanish camp, and meanwhile the seashore of the port, covered with people and some ships at anchor, and others under sail, they concluded that the Portuguese were just landing and waited to see them begin the attack. Now, eventually, though, they decided to send a spy down to discover the uh, situation, um, but the Canarian agent was captured by Spanish troopers and brought to Don Juan Rayon. And that was how he discovered of the secret treaty between the natives and the Portuguese. 
And whew, holy fuck was he angry. Galindo, Galindo tells us the general was so incensed that he determined to place no more confidence in the Canarians and began to harass them more than ever by continual inroads into the country, which he frequently brought away whole flocks of sheep and goats and made a number of captives. The Portuguese, meanwhile, continued to hover around the island, waiting for an opportunity to land and to try their fortune a second time. But the sea continued in an agitated state for many days, and so they despaired of success, and having lost almost all of their boats anyway, they abandoned their design and returned home, not attempting a second landing. With the Portuguese threat gone, the, the Spaniards returned to the work of finishing their castle and fortifications. Twice a week, they sent a party of horse and about 200 foot into the country in search of sheep and other provisions at a considerable distance from the camp. The Canarians had mostly retired to the mountains, where the Spaniards could not attack them but at great disadvantage. And this situation persisted like that for eight months, with a furious and tyrannical Don Juan Rayon ordering these excursions, for which he was getting a lot wealthier than the uh, men who were actually trudging up and down the mountains every uh, twice a week, dodging spears and boulders. And during this time, the Spaniards did not receive any supply of provisions from Europe since their first landing. And this fact, as much as uh, Rayon's orders, compelled the Spaniards to go out and raid for food, if nothing else. Now, Galindo tells us that some of their grief at their situation was finally relieved when a Flemish vessel had came to the island to purchase Orkilla and weed arrived, um, and which sent the soldiers into a rush out to the rocks where the weed grew so they could sell it to the, to the merchants. And, and I'm telling you this because the scarcity of the provisions in the camp occasioned much murmuring and discontent among the Spaniards. And as you might recall, Juan Rayon kind of sort of had a partner in this whole deal, the Dean Juan Bermudas. Now, Bermudas took the opportunity of this new vessel arriving to send an official complaint to the Spanish crown about Rayon's behavior. And as the complaints and murmurings had inc daily increased, the Don Juan Rayon and Dean Juan Bermudas had at length uh, been at bad on bad terms with each other, and so... Bermudas wrote to the court of Castile against Juan Rion. He accused him of wasting the provisions, of spinning out the war to an unreasonable length, and having contented himself with the defeat he had given the Canarians at Guiniguada, whereas uh, he should have, as the dean pretended he could have, uh, followed that blow up with another and reduced the whole island to the obedience of the Catholic majesties. Now, Don Juan Rion was a little busy himself to be properly defending himself during this time, I think, since he was busy helping some of the other conquistadors who were on board his mission, uh, some of them that weren't pissed off at him anyway. Uh, because, and that's because some of the men on the expedition owned estates in Lanzarote. But these had been taken from them uh, in part of the previous diplomatic arrangements, which had given the island to the Herrera family. Now, mind you, the Herrera family had also lost title to three Canarian islands, including Gran Canary. So when Don Rion and his troops sh uh, showed up there, things didn't quite uh, go so well as thought as he had hoped. Now, 
The Herrera and Peraza families, joined by marriage, dispatched Hernand Peraza, their son, to the port to forbid uh, Rayon's force to land. Galindo tells us that Juan Rayon, in a courteous manner, acquainted Peraza with the distress of the troops in Gran Canaria, and that he had come to beg a supply of provisions for them, which he would thankfully repay the favor. Now, only after getting into this business for quite some time did Rion get about to his true uh, business, which is, oh, and by the way, I also came to discuss the business of the confiscated estates of my comrades, so why don't you just give them some land? Unsurprisingly, I think, um, Galindo tells us that notwithstanding all what Juan Rion had to say, uh, Peraza was inflexible and would not suffer any of them to remain on shore, even to take the least refreshment, but by force compelled them all to return on board. And this exasperated Juan Rayon. And so he did the only thing he could think of doing, uh, ordered his vessel, to, his vessel to fire upon those who were on the shore. Now this killed Diego de Herrera's gentleman and wounded two others. And immediately after that, Juan Rayon set sail to return for Canaria. Man, what a dick this guy is. Now, Don Juan Rayon received more bad news when he returned from Lancerote to the Gran Canaria. There, he found himself superseded by a governor named Pedro de Algava, who was, had been sent from Spain in consequence of the complaints transmitted to the court against him by the Dean Bermudas. Now, Governor Algava was the first governor sent to Spain to the Canary Islands. Now, according to Galindo, and that makes him important, I guess, you know, maybe for jeopardy, as to the question, to the answer, the first Spanish colonial governor, who is Pedro de Algava? Now, at any rate, Juan Rayon could not have been pleased that Algava had brought with him, in addition to all this new-fangled legal authority, a fleet of his own, and on board of which that fleet were soldiers of his own. But in addition, the soldiers who were already at the Grand Canary, who were ostensibly loyal to Juan Rayon, they also kind of held the newly appointed Governor Algava in pretty high esteem, since he also carried with him provisions, which were desperately needed by the Spanish. Now, Rayon apparently was able to prudently dissemble his discontent long enough to wait upon the governor on the seashore upon his arrival, but on the next day, when Algava gathered all the principal captives on the island together and issued his instructions, namely, that if it was his majesty the king's express orders that, would, that had put he, Algava, in charge, Rayon just could not keep his mouth shut. As soon as Algava was done with the speech... Rayon launched into one of his own, centered on the foul treatment he'd received from Diego de Herrera and Lanzarota, and he proposed that Herrera thus be declared a rebel and an enemy to the intended conquest and be treated accordingly. I'm sure he wasn't at all trying to cover up for the fact that he'd just murdered one of Herrera's men in cold blood on Lanzarote, but at any rate, Algava refused to do that, although he did commend the Don Juan Rayon for his the zeal with which he engaged in the spirit of conquest. Herrera certainly wasn't about to be declared a rebel. Don Juan Rayon apparently did not let the matter lie. Because shortly after this, Galindo tells us that the governor and the dean arrested Juan Rayon and brought him to a trial. There, he was charged with partiality, robbery, mutiny, and a design of making use of the troops destined for the conquest of 
Canaria, to instead revenge his private quarrel with Diego de Herrera at Lanzarote, all of which he was found guilty of by the assembly and sentenced to be sent back to Spain as a prisoner. Now, well, so much for that. The Spanish continued their raids against the Guanche, now under the command of Governor Algava. And Galindo tells us that he, as so many before him did, learned how obstinate Guanche resistance to Spanish control was. Algava was able to make friends and ally with Diego de Herrera, who furnished additional provisions to the camp now, a much easier deal to broker than it might have otherwise been, since the request for aid also came with the news that Juan Rayon had been arrested and sent to Spain. And afterwards, after having received this aid, the Spaniards received intelligence of a native gathering place at a place called Maya. The conquistadors marched in quest of, of, the, of the Guanche there, but finding only a small number, they attacked. The Guanche, though, made a brave defense and escaped with their persons. The Canarians were under the command of the Guanar team of Galdar, and they, but they did leave a number of cattle in the hands of the enemy, who carried them off, of course. But the Canarians continued to observe the Spaniards on their return, and seeing that they became greatly fatigued with the rugged road and the length of the march, the Guanche rallied and waylaid them as they were coming down a steep mountain. Galindo tells us that the Spanish performed wonders, or they would have all been cut to pieces. As it was, they lost five horses and several of their men, though they kept possession of their booty. Next, the governor, along with his ally, Dean Bermudas, sent another expedition to sail to the other end of the island, to send new troops under the command of one Pedro Hernandez Cabron. They did not find any large body to oppose them, for as soon as the Canarians observed the ships, they fled into the mountains. So the Spaniards marched into the country in pursuit of them, plundering the villages as they went. They collected a great booty, consisting of sheep, barley, dried figs, which they thought most prudent to put on the ships so as to not be encumbered. A Canarian slave who had turned Roman Catholic and was amongst them advised the commander... Don, uh, excuse me, Pedro Cabron, that they should wait instead of advance to attack. The slave was certain the Canarians were waiting in an ambush ahead to cut off the retreat of the Spanish. But if they waited ahead for two days, then the Canarians would be forced to disperse from lack of food. Pedro Cabron, not having experienced the valor and skill of the natives, answered, he was not afraid of naked people and ordered the troops to continue the march. As they were on their way towards the ships, they came to a steep rock where the Canarians waited for the turn of the Spaniards. A ferocious battle followed. Galinda reports that it began with the Guanche suddenly setting up a great shout and fell upon and routed the Spaniards, killing 26 and wounding about 100. In the pursuit, they took a great quantity of arms and made several prisoners. When the people who were taking care of the ships saw their comrades flying towards the seashore, they immediately set their boats to bring them off, and covered the retreat as well as they could, by firing their great guns upon the enemy. In this encounter, the commander, Cabron, received a wound in the head by a stone. Talk about a perspective switch. I imagine Cabron developed at least a healthy respect for naked people after that. Now, before we continue any farther, we need to 
return our attention back to the Don Juan Reon. Because if you think that just because he was arrested in disgrace and sent back to Spain for plotting a coup against the newly appointed royal governor, that this is the end of his story, then I'll need to let you know a couple of things about Don Juan Rayon. I mean, besides the fact that he's a dickhead. One, Mas Aya. And two, Juan Rayon had a relation at the court of Castile, by means of whose great influence at court he had procured the king's commission in the first place, and who was now able to help Juan Rayon get right back into the action. After his arrest, Rayon immediately went to speak with Spanish authorities. He convinced them there that the situation for the conquistadors was so dire that immediately four ships were sent to, supply, to resupply the soldiers there. And he got a lot more than just some supplies for his buddies. Juan Rayon's silver tongue, combined with the help of his highly placed relative at court, got the charges dropped, providing Rayon promised he was very, very sorry. Rayon promised he was very, very sorry, and then immediately began plotting with his relative, whose name was Don Fernandino Rayon, just so you know, and who was a knight of the Order of St. Iago and the captain general of the Spanish artillery, mind you, a pretty important command, uh, how to get back to the Gran Canaria. Fernandino helped Ron Rayon hire a vessel, and on board of which Rayon put 30 of his trusted men and sailed immediately for the Gran Canaria. They arrived on the 2nd of May, 1480, in the evening, but they did not land until well after dark. The crew of the vessel had been previously instructed to let no one know of Rayon's being aboard, but to say only that he'd come with provisions from Spain, in the company with two other ships which had touched at Lanzarote. This lie passed very well, and the news of the arrival with a fresh supply caused great joy. Later that night, Juan Rayon and his thirty men secreted themselves ashore into the private home of the Alcalde Major, which is a sort of a medieval combination of mayor and judge, and, and he was one of the officers still loyal to Rayon. His house also adjoined the church. The next day, Galindo tells us, while the governor, Pedro de Algava, was in church, hearing mass, Juan Rayon and his friends and his friends and 30 men rushed in, crying, God save the king. They immediately seized Pedro de Algava, whom they dragged out of the church and confined in the tower in strong irons, as he had formerly served Juan Rayon. The dean Bermudas was also seized and confined, together with some other suspected persons. Now, as you imagine, there was a great tumult throughout the city by this time, and the allies of the governor took up arms. But Juan Rayon produced some sort of paperwork which appeased them. I, I kid you not, nothing is quoted, so I have no idea what this document might have said um, or whether or not it was uh, legitimate. I doubt it, uh, unless it was only something that said he was legally free from his charges because that uh, did happen. But he did not have any real authority to arrest the royal governor. Now, regardless of that, Juan Rayon and his allies quickly had charges brought up against Algava, alleging that he had been carrying on a secret correspondence with the king of Portugal, to whom uh, Algava had supposedly already sold the island to. On the trial, the witnesses brought to support the charge were people of no repute or character. Nevertheless, he was found guilty and condemned to lose his head. 
On the day fixed for the execution of his sentence, at the sound of a trumpet, the unfortunate Algava was brought forth to the square or parade of St. Anthony in the city of Palmas, where, after his crime had been proclaimed in the great form by the public crier, he was beheaded according to his sentence. What a fucking dick that Rayon is, man, right? Now, Galindo agrees with me here. Though he says so in a pretty understated way, writing Juan Rayon would have acted a better part had he sent Algava to prisoner to Spain, it is unbecoming a man of a generous or noble spirit to order the execution of his declared enemy. Well, I'll say, that's one way of putting it. Now, the others, Dean Bermudis and Algava's other allies, were also tried, found guilty of mutiny and of raising disturbances amongst the troops, and they were banished and sent aboard a bark to the island of Gomera, where they were put ashore on the island, which was in the midst of a Guanch rebellion against Hernan Peraza, the Spanish master there. Now, the coup successful, Rayon immediately went towards completing the conquest of the island, and with that view, determined to make an inroad against the Canarians. So he led his men out, but not long after doing so, he noticed a ship pulling into the island and decided to turn back to the city. The ship had been sent by the king, Don Fernandino. Don Ferdinand, excuse me. Uh, after hearing about the discord amongst the officers employed on the island, he had put on board one Pedro de Vera, the new royal governor. Now, needless to say, Rayon and the Alcade Mayor, for that point, were a little bit fearful when de Vero landed on the 18th of August, 1480, and learned he was the new royal governor, both of them thinking probably that it was very possible that they might end up being treated not so dissimilarly uh, as had been done with Pedro de Algava. Now, both men, though, Galindo tells us, went to receive him with an appearance of cheerfulness as the best way of concealing their apprehensions. The men hung out all day, becoming fast friends, and later in the evening, de Vera even showed Rayon and, Alcade and the Alcade Mayor his ships. When the governor departed, Rayon was stopped. De Vera's two sons were hidden aboard the ship, and the governor informed Juan Rayon that, they were now his, that he was now his prisoner by order of the Catholic Majesties. Rayon surrendered, Unfortunately for his uh, once partner and now enemy, well, unfortunately for him, I guess, who really cares, the Dean Juan Bermudas died himself shortly before the arrival of uh, de Vera, and so he never found out about this. And at any rate, he, um, he died apparently of mere chagrin and vexation, says Galindo, whatever that means, some sort of disease that they didn't understand. At any rate, the Dean Bermudas could not have died a happy conquistador, considering he'd started the whole plan of upending Don Juan Rayon so that he could be in charge, uh, not dying in languish uh, in exile while some newfangled royal governor took over. At any rate, the newfangled new royal governor was desirous of taking a view of the country, and accordingly took with him the horse and some infantry and marched until he encountered a party of, a party of Canarians, commanded by the valiant Doramus. The Guanche saw the Spanish approaching and retreated to a mountain near the sea. The Spanish continued to advance, and Doramus sent a messenger to challenge any one of them to single combat. The governor, Pedro de Vera, 
himself was dissuaded from personally going by his own officers, who worried about the possible damage to the king's affairs if he should fall. But a gentleman in the cavalry named Juan de Hoses, who was also quite eager to accept the challenge, up did obtain leave from the general to engage. When Doramus sent him, saw him approaching, he drew near and threw a fufmago, or dart, with such force that it went through the Spaniard's coat of mail and pierced his heart, so that he dropped down dead in the view of both armies. After this, de Vera would no longer be undeterred by his officers. Well, neither would he be, uh, was he uh, very eager to uh, go along with the deal. Uh, instead, he advanced singly with great composure to try his strength with this formidable champion. Duramus, with pleasure, took aim with the dart and let it fly. But the wary general received it on one side of his shield. It flew off obliquely and passed clear of his body. Duramus then drew nearer and threw another dart with more force than the former, which de Vera likewise avoided, bowing himself and letting it pass over him. Spurring his horse, he closed with his lance at Duramus, and before he had time to take another aim, struck him on the side with full force that he fell to the ground. Doramus waved his hand, signaling his surrender, before de Vera could land another blow. The stunned Guanche army attacked in response, and a furious conflict ensued in which many more Canarians fell before they retreated to the mountain. In their attempt to avenge the death of Doramus, who, while he was not dead immediately, did perish as the Spaniards tried to take him back to Palmas as their prisoner. The incident cemented Pedro de Vera's rule on the island, at least among the Spaniards. Though, on the other hand, the Guanche of Gran Canary were not long in being subdued, even with the loss of this great champion. In the immediate aftermath of the battle, a number of Canarians did, though, voluntarily surrender themselves in order to attend the funeral of their deceased chief. While assembled, de Vera proceeded to make fair speeches and large promises to these Canarians, and in doing so convinced 200 of them to join him in an attack on the Guanche on the island of Tenerife. Now, as a brief aside, I want to note that it's really important to understand. Uh, it's, it's easy for us to look back and wonder, why would the Guanche ever want to fight each other? Um, well, you could ask the same thing of the conquistadors, frankly. So um, before you judge any of them, uh, why are the conquistadors cutting each other's heads off instead of joining forces? Well, as the Spanish forces on the Canary Islands grew, these little fortresses started turning into small towns. And in no small part, this was because of non-Spanish-speaking people there, whether they be Europeans, enslaved Africans from the mainland, or Canaries from other islands, sometimes even natives from the Grand Canaria themselves uh, might be in, in Palmas, uh, leaving their life as the fishermen did, um, to instead of starving to death, or nearly starving to death in the mountains, exchange that for a crappy job and uh, in the Spanish city. Sure, the Spanish suck, but this is a changing landscape, such a person might think, and my kids gotta eat. You know, motivation can be as simple as that for, for, this, for the uh, Canarians. But in addition, the fact of the matter is life is complicated. Feuds can develop between people who might otherwise have close relations, and, and the different tribes of the islands of the Guanche had their own histories, their own rivalries, and their own dicks who were happy enough killing for profit. Now, before I get carried away, these Canarians, though, were not headed to Tenerife. De Vera intended instead to sell them to Spain. Now, unfortunately for the Spaniards aboard that ship, 
after the Canadians were loaded uh, on and were far enough away that see that they could no longer see their homeland, they got suspicious. They threatened to throw the Spanish overboard if they did not head back home immediately. The Spaniards threat, uh, dreaded the execution of these threats, according to Galindo, and set sail for the nearest piece of land, which was, mind you, not the Gran Canaria, but instead the island of Lanzarote. Now, the Canarians were kept at Lanzarote for some time, but they never did make it back to the Gran Canaria. Instead, they were sent over to Barbary, where Galindo tells us they almost all perished after being sent to succor the castle of Santa Cruz. On the other hand, though, news of what happened to the captives and their fate on Lanzarote and later in Barbary did become known to the Canarians who were in the city of Palmas, and these folks were so greatly offended that they left the Spaniards and joined their countrymen in the mountains, from whence they renewed the war with redoubled vigor. Despite these defections, though, the Spanish had made themselves masters of all the low grounds near the sea by this time, the Canarians, as I said, not daring to venture into the plains for fear of being made prisoners by small parties of horse which scattered about the island. The Canarians only felt safe in their mountains and in the mountain passes which they fortified and guarded. Pedro de Vera found he could not force these passes, and so he decided to build a second fort on the other side of the island in the neighborhood of these mountains and the lurking places of the natives, from whence he might make incursions against them, and always secure of a retreat in case of being worsted. So, with this in mind, de Vera took two well-manned ships south, and he found a place that was well-watered and full of fig trees, and there began construction of a stone and lime fort, which was finished in about two months. He left 30 men there to garrison it under the command of Alonso Hernandez de Lugo and returned to Palmas. And with this finished, de Vera ordered some of his soldiers to attack one of the fortified mountain passes. The Spanish, knowing their superior force and elated by their late victory, marched boldly forward and without hesitation began to ascend the steep but the Canarians defended themselves so well by throwing stones and tumbling down loose fragments of rock upon the enemy that they obliged them to retreat with the loss of 25 men and a great number wounded. After this repulse, Pedro de Vero arrived with reinforcements. Seeing the Spaniards so roughly handled, he was determined to revenge their loss and immediately marched to the pass where he forced the natives to retreat who probably were not on their guard against this second attack, not expecting the Spanish again so quickly. This finished, de Vera began to have confidence in his victory, though things were not quite as wrapped up on the island as he believed. And that's because one of the Garys on the island had a daring plan to take the fight to the Spanish. His name was Ventagoya, and he came to Palmas, on the pretense of being converted and baptized. He continued with this for a few days, carefully observing everything, especially the fortifications of the town, the nature of the Spanish discipline, and their manner of placing guards and sentinels. When he thought he had made himself sufficiently master of these things, he returned to his companions in the mountains, from whence he made frequent sallies in the nighttime, 
and did the Spaniards considerable damage by killing their guards and making prisoners of those whom necessity obliged to go fishing or gathering orchilla. This success bred more ambitious operations by Ventigoya. It was decided that the Guanche would surround the city of Palmas at night and attack it. A fainting force would attack the gates, but the main attack would come from the seashore, as the Spaniards thought themselves most secure from that quarter. Ventigoya and the Guanche got into position for the attack. And uh, timing is everything, is it not? The Guanche on the land side had not attacked at the time agreed upon. And when Ventigoya and his men heard a loud noise from within the town, they thought the attack was underway and leapt from their hiding places and over the walls. A great battle ensued, but with the whole garrison available and raised to defend this threat instead of what was supposed to be a feint at the front gates, the Canarians fell in great numbers. So too did the Spaniards, but at length the natives were repulsed. De Vera forbid his soldiers to leave, ordering the, ordering the garrison to remain under arms. He and the other Spaniards, despite the overall attack of the Guanche failure, were stunned into fearful defense. Ventigoya was not killed, and so he continued con to harass the Spanish. Next, he built a scaling ladder, and with a companion who was keeping watch, crept over the walls again after the battle and entered the city once more. He killed the sentinel guarding the stables, and then killed two of Pedro de Vera's own personal horses before leaving, since he was unable to cause more mischief without being discovered. He was nearly killed when he was spotted by another Spanish sentinel, when he was going back over the wall. The Spaniard threw a rock at him, which hit him in the head and knocked him out and over the wall. But the Spanish sentry did not go to investigate what had just happened. In the darkness of night, apparently the guard had no idea what he'd just done, and he was under the impression that he'd probably just killed a fellow conquistador who was sneaking out of the castle to go fishing. See, remember, de Vera had forbid the Spanish from leaving in the aftermath of the battle, and at any rate, since the, the Sentinel decided, since he'd probably just murdered one of his compatriots, that the best thing to do was to pretend that nothing happened, and definitely not to report anything. In the meantime, Ventigoya's companion, who had heard Ventigoya fall, eventually got brave enough to go a little closer uh, to the wall to see what had happened, and he found Ventigoya, and the two escaped. But um, now with all that said, we need to backtrack just a little bit, um, because while all of this is just really exciting, we have lost track of something, of someone. Fucking Don Juan Rayon. Now, if you think that just because Juan Rayon has been arrested a second time and sent back to Spain, this time for executing the king's own royal governor, that this would be the end of his tale, well, you do not know two things. First, Mas Aya. Second, the Don Juan Rayon still has a relative who is the captain general of the Spanish artillery, which in the 1400s is a hugely important role in the Spanish government, as you might imagine. And when Juan Rayon arrived in Castile this time, he again procured his releasement, according to Galindo, which 
frankly, I don't even think should surprise you at this point. Now, of course, this was because of his relation, the general of artillery, and in fact, not only was he set at liberty, but obtained also the command of some troops destined for the conquest of the island of Palma and Tenerife. So, of course, Juan Rayon, having cleared his conduct, he was really, really sorry, again, he sailed from Cadiz with 300 men, his wife, two young sons, 20 horses, and four ships. He did not go to Palma or Tenerife, of course. He went straight for the Gran Canaria to visit his old acquaintance. Because of course I did. I mean, come on. We are talking about Don Juan Reon, one of the biggest dickheads of all time here. Now, luckily for Pedro de Vera, the new royal governor, as you might remember, he found out about Reon's arrival and, greatly alarmed, fearing to suffer the same fate as Pedro de Algava, and I bet he was, do not get beheaded was probably what his inner monologue was compelling him, de Vera wisely and quickly grabbed some of Reon's relatives, Reon's sister and brother-in-law, who lived on the island, to deliver a message to him to convince him not to land, this ship still being at port. The message being that de Vera had raised the alarm, and thus, Rayon's landing would only be productive of commotions, since de Vera was determined to oppose him by force. Now, Rayon's sister cried while his brother-in-law explained this to him, and as a result, he was convinced not to land his troops. Now, surely, Rayon would have plan was planning to try his luck a fifth time on the Gran Canaria, but when he, he, he left to go to do, go to Tenerife or, or go uh, to, to uh, Palm, I think, but bad weather instead forced his ships to land at Gomera, the one place, well, besides Gran Canaria, which was chock full of his enemies. And so when Rayon landed with eight men for supplies, they received it from the native Gomerans, but the native Gomerans also immediately told the uh, Dold Hernan Ferraza, of Rayon's arrival, and whoa, boy, was Peraza greatly interested in this sudden development of the whereabouts of the guy who'd killed his gentleman. He sent some of his people to bring Rayon to him. Rayon, of course, refused to obey. Galindo writes that when they attempted to compel him by force, a scuffle ensued, in which Rayon was killed. An ignoble death for an ignoble man. Finally, the Don Juan Rayon exits our story, and let that be a lesson to all of us. Don't be a dick. Now, Hernan Peraza, who really is no better a person than Juan Rayon, after this, he immediately publishes a manifesto to clear himself of having any hand in the death, and to state that he defin definitely only sent his men to try and figure out what Rayon's motives were. No violence intended, honest. Now, this might have been true, or maybe they were sent to assassinate Rayon. Either of those explanations, I think, are likely, and at any rate, after Rayon's death, Peraza was able to make up enough with uh, Rayon's surviving family that things became much more settled for the Spanish on the Canary Islands after that. Excuse me. Rayon's small army of 300 conquistadors went to the Gran Canaria again, but this time to serve under Governor de Vera in the further conquests of the island. Rayon had rep represented a dangerous threat, 
And his removal gave Devera and the Parazas the opportunity to jointly participate in the continued conquest of Gran Canaria. Peraza and his troops, amounting to the whole of 150, force, 150 Spanish and Gomeran force with 12 horses, arrived in February of 1482 to fight under Devera, Devera as well. And they landed where Devera had previously built the fort near the mountains. Now, just days later, Devera sent orders to Peraza. Excuse me, I'm going to drink a little more water. Um, <clears throat> to make an incursion upon the district of Galdar. Now, Devera would likewise attack at the same time, so that the natives might be divided and obliged to defend themselves at both sides at once. Both forces thus left on the same night. Devera's men made with so considerable a booty and killed several of the Canarians, but though they also uh, received some loss on their own side, as the enemy fought desperately to save their flocks. Peraza's family, meanwhile, was able to enter the villages of Galdar by surprise, and thence made prisoners of the Guanartim, Guanache Semiden, and 15 other Canarians, together with their wives and children. The Guanartim and some others had come down from the mountains to sleep in their houses, said Galindo, not suspecting the Spanish were near. After this raid, the Spaniards divided the spoil, with the royal governor de Vera saving a fifth for the king. And more than that, de Vera now carried with him the Guanar team as his prisoner, and by the accomplishment of this feat, hoped soon to become master of the island. De Vera sent his prisoner to Spain to be presented before the king and queen of Spain. For de Vera and the Catholic majesties, this was a chance to obtain political victory over one of the two tribes of Gran Canaria. Galindo tells us that the Guanartim was struck with admiration at the wealth and power of the Spanish nation, the splendor of its court, and above all, at the magnificence and solemn grandeur of the Catholic worship. He fell to upon his knees before the majesties, desiring to be baptized. And well, I'm not saying that didn't happen, but I am saying that I have a feeling that the Guanar team was terrified he was not he was going to be executed. Um, is probably had a lot more than his grandeur sense of grandeur. At any rate, he was given pardon and baptized by the name of Don Fernando, Don Fernando, Don Ferdinando. I am the best at names, Don Ferdinando. Now, King Ferdinand of Spain, ordered that he be entertained splendidly, and granted him and his companions liberty to return to the Gran Canaria. In exchange, the Guanar team and his companions promised to use their utmost endeavors to convert their countrymen, and bring them other under obedience to the crown of Spain. And in exchange, those who did would have the full enjoyment of the liberties and effects of those who voluntarily submitted to the Spanish dominion. The Spanish monarchs, though, weren't alone in their ability to negotiate, and the Guanar team was also able to convince the Spanish monarchs to give him and his people a valley in the Gran Canaria called Goyayedra, a place abounding with fig trees and with pastures for his flocks and which would serve as a safe place for the people of Galdar to stay. Now, the king readily granted this request, which, though undoubtedly infuriated many of the conquistadors, um, and I should say that over time, these sorts of uh, 
reservations um, become smaller and smaller as as the sh- threat from the sugar industry uh, increases against the Guanche, even after the conquest. Pedro de Vera, meanwhile, though, was is not finished. Now, he wrote to the king of the necessity of more troops, because Peraza and his men were leaving Gran Canaria and were returning to Gomera. And as a result of this, 200 more recruits are raised under one Miguel Morifka, who brought them to the Gran Canary, along with the returning Guanche uh, Semedin, who was now going by the name of Don Don Fernandinando. I'm really bad. That's a tough one. Don Fernandinando. Don Ferdinando. Don Ferdinando. I don't know why I have trouble with that. I think it's because it's so next to King Ferdinand, who, in addition to the 200 troops raised by Morifka, sent orders to the Holy Brotherhood of Andalusia, a monastic society, which was little different than the Portuguese Order of Christ, from which the Dom Henrique recruited so many of his conquistadors earlier in the century. And in response to the Spanish king's command, 150 more men and 55 horses also went to the Gran Canaria from the uh, Holy Brotherhood of Andalusia. Now, Pedro de Vera now found himself well supplied with men and provisions, and so set out to attack the Canarians in the mountains. Galindo tells us that the people of Galdar were struck with astonishment at the arrival of the Guanartim. The newly baptized Don Fernando, Don Ferdinando, went to the resistance in an attempt to broker peace. He assembled all the chiefs of his people and explained to them how vain and imprudent it would be to attempt to hold out any longer, and that such obstinacy could only end in their own destruction. Some were moved by his reasons, and according came and submitted themselves, but the far greater part refused to give ear to his advice. They proceeded to elect for their general the valiant Tafarte instead. The assembled Guanche gave Don Ferdinando a chance to go with them. He declined, and so they also elected a new Guanar team as well. The new Guanar team was one of the sons of the late Guanar team of Telde, and this was a basically a pretty strong rebuke of Don Ferdinando. Don Ferdinando. I got it right, now I got it wrong again. The Guanche reproached him with having abandoned his brethren and warned the now ex-Guanar team that as soon as the Spaniards brought all the natives under their subjection, they would betray him. Don Ferdinando, great at names, he returned to Palmas and informed Pedro de Vera of what happened, and so de Vera marshaled his forces and marched. Galindo guides us through the campaign. De Vera encountered many of the people of Galdar holed up in a fortified mountain pass called Ventagoya. He laid siege to the pass, blockading it for 15 days, imagining that he should oblige the natives, who were shut up there with their wives and children, to surrender or perish by hunger. De Vera was mistaken. They had provisions for months, and when he learned of this, he marched in order to force its sword in hand. But he was vigorously repulsed by the natives, Eight men were killed and several more were wounded. For as soon as they had perceived him approaching, the Canarians tumbled huge stones down from the precipices upon him and his people and threw such a shower of stones and darts 
that the Spaniards were glad to retreat. De Vera, after that forced retreat, returned to the plains, where he captured a great quantity of cattle before, man before marching to a different natural fortress called Titania, a place of great strength. The natives there, Galindo tell us, tells us, felt too secure in their fortress and kept no lookout. This enabled De Vera and his troops, joined with some of the converted natives, to surprise them. They killed 20 of the defenders. The Spanish then abandoned Titania, which was apparently refortified by the Guanchanu after this, and they kept care to look, take a lookout after that. But meanwhile, De Vera and his force continued on to another mountain pass. The Spaniards forced this place also, taking many prisoners with much cattle and killing those who defended the passes. After the battle, two women, to avoid falling into the enemy's hands, threw themselves down from the precipice and were dashed to pieces. Now as the natives who resisted, to, who continued to resist to see, uh, saw the Spanish forces increasing, Many more did begin to take the advice of Don Fernando. Don Ferdinando. Don Ferdinando. But General Tafarte did not follow the example of his countrymen. Instead, like the two women previously described by Galindo, Tafarte saw himself deserted, and that none of his tribe were willing to stand by him or make head against the Spaniards. And so he resolved to die rather than submit. Accordingly, he went to the top of a steep precipice and called aloud, Atertifma, Atertifma, which is the manner in which Canarians invoked God. He then threw himself headlong down and perished. After this, Pedro de Vera continued to hunt distressed Canarians from their caverns and hiding places. Even then, though, the spirit of freedom was so strong in some of the Canarians that when de Vera attacked still yet another fortress after the suicide of Tafarte, the result of the battle was the most severe defeat the Spaniards had experienced on the Gran Canaria in years. Half of de Vera's troops began climbing the mountain and found themselves unopposed until they were surprised by the Canarians, and only after they had all entered the first pass. Suddenly, giving a great shout, they tumbled down an immense quantity of huge stone upon them from the adjacent heights. The Spaniards were unable to resist this unexpected attack and sought their safety by flight, but in vain, for the pass by which they ascended was very narrow and steep that they could only crawl down one by one on all fours. In doing this, a most dreadful carnage of the fugitives ensued. The conquistadors did manage to escape, thanks to the other half of the force arriving. But afterwards, de Vera retired back to Palmas to take care of the wounded, of which there was a great number. And in addition, 50 were left for dead in that spot. But de Vera did not intend on resting for long. But in the end, it was Don Ferdinando who would finally end the conflict. He traveled again to the resistors, who were determined to die rather than to surrender to the Spanish, and he went to a wedding. The number of natives at the wedding was about 600 fighting men, with over a thousand women and children. 
Among these were all the nobles and the young Guanartim of Telde, who was about to be married to the daughter of the Guanartim of Galdar, which would unite the two tribes and make him king of the whole island. Don Ferdinando spoke again to his fellow Guanche in an eloquent speech, accompanied by tears, and he conjured for them to have compassion for their wives and their children, and to lay aside all their thoughts of resistance, which would only end in their own destruction. He declared that he himself would be answerable to them if the Spaniards did not treat them well, and he promised the protection of their liberties and their effects. And finally, with these and other soothing speeches, he at length prevailed upon the natives to surrender, which they did by throwing up their arms and at the same time setting up a dismal howling and crying. The young Guanartim of Telde, seeing his hopes thus blasted, went to the brow of a precipice, accompanied by the old fake hag. They embraced each other and called out, Antartifma! and threw themselves headlong down and perished together. This happened on the 29th of April, 1483, 77 years after the first attempt on the island by Jean de Bethencourt. Galindo tells us that afterwards, Pedro de Vera ruled, ruled the island in relative peace. Gran Canaria had been happily reduced the news, of course, gave King Ferdinand in Spain great satisfaction. He immediately ordered a great parts of the island distributed among the soldiers, according with their rank and merit. He granted extraordinary, extraordinary privileges and immunities to those who went to settle on the island. He ordered a number of fruit trees, plants, and sugar canes to be sent to Canaria, which throve and multiplied there exceedingly the soil and climate being extremely well adapted to the growth of almost every kind of vegetable. Yet many of the conquistadors chose not to settle. Many instead, who might not have known how to farm in the first place, were rather desirous to serve in the conquest of Granada, which was just starting up. Neither was Pedro de Vera planning on sitting on his laurels, Hernand Peraza had died in 1485, and afterwards the native Gomerans rebelled. The Peraza family wrote to de Vera, asking for his help, and so once again de Vera set out for a campaigning, this time on Gomera. The royal governor immediately gathered what men he could spare and embarked to Gomera. There he found Hernand Peraza, the Spanish master of the island, besieged in his tower by the native Gomerans, who, when they saw the ships of de Vera and his men approaching, raised the siege and retreated into the mountains. De Vera pursued them, capturing some and sending over 200 to the Gran Canaria as slaves. Others he put to death to serve as an example. After this, de Vera and his force departed Gomera, but this would not be for long. And that's because, while Galindo specifically mentions he did not know the cause of this first rebellion, 
well, the first of two quick rebellions, I should say, he did speculate that it was because Peraza's rule was oppressive, to which I would say that seems pretty obvious. Now, at any rate, the second revolt began apparently because Hernan Peraza was having an affair with a handsome Gomeran girl who lived in a cave near to which he had some cornfields. Now, the relationship was not consensual because simultaneously she was plotting with the natives how they might take advantage of this and seize him, and one night enacted their plan. Peraza arrived in the cave with two companions, his page and his gentleman, and met with the unnamed woman who was accompanied herself with another older woman. In the meantime, the woman Peraza was having an affair with had a brother who was kind of a badass. His name was Hata Hata Kapucher. Hata Kapucher. Oh, goodness gracious. I am great at names. I'll have you know. Hata Kapucher. Hata Kapuche. Hata Kapucher. Hata Kapuche. Hata Kapuche. Hata Kapuche. Hata Kapuche. Hata Kapuche was so greatly offended to Peraza's intrigue with the damsel and that he wanted an opportunity to revenge the affront offered to his family. So, while the main force of the Gomerans were under orders to capture Peraza, Hata Kapuche Kapuche ran ahead. Hata Kapuche when Peraza discovered from his lover that her people were coming to take him, he tried to escape by slipping on a woman's garment to disguise himself. But his escape was foiled by the old woman who was there. When she cried out, That is a man running away in woman's clothes! Stop him! Stop him! Peraza found he was discovered after hearing the alarm and returned inside saying, If I am to be taken or killed, it shall not be in a woman's dress. So he put his own clothes back on and his coat of mail, took his sword and his shield, and he came out to the mouth of the cave, where he found Hata Kapuchere standing above, watching his coming out, armed with a wooden dart with a long spike in the head of it. And when he saw Peraza, he darted his weapon down upon him, which entered between the joints of his armor, pierced his neck, and went through the midst of his body, so that he fell dead on the spot. The Gomerans also killed his gentleman and page. Now, Peraza's death must have been a bittersweet death for the Gomerans. Now, the capture of Peraza might have earned the Gomerans considerable concessions against the Spanish. But his death, in contrast, would bring nothing but war. And so once again, the Gomerans laid siege to the Peraza's tower. They blocked up the castle many days and reduced those who were shut up in it to a very great straits, though they were secretly supplied with necessities enough to survive. The besiegers attempted to force their way into the castle, but those that were within kept them well off with stones and arrows, with which they happened to be well provided. Hoda Capuchere was the most active among the assailants in carrying on the siege. He was so dexterous that he caught all the arrows shot at him with his hand as they flew. But at length, the Spanish endeavored to decoy him to the bottom of the tower by sending one archer to it, provoking Hotacapuchere closer as he dodged and caught the Spaniards' attempts. Meanwhile, another conquistador hid near the bottom and fired a crossbow through the loophole and shot him dead with an arrow. 
when the natives saw the death of Hautecapuchere and discovered that Peraza's widow had once again sent more for Pedro de Vera, they retreated once more to the mountain. De Vera, for his part, came once more to Gomera, now with 400 men, and marched against those who were in the mountain stronghold. He at length enticed them with fair words and promises to surrender, brought them to the town at the port, and there, notwithstanding his promise that he would do them no harm, condemned all those to death who were above 15 years of age. This unjust sentence was executed with great rigor, some being hanged, others drowned, others drawn asunder by horses. Not content with this severity, De Vera caused the hands and feet of many of the Gomerans to be cut off and banished others. In addition to this cruelty, a villain named Alonso de Cota, who was carrying a number of the banished in a ship to Lancerote, simply threw them overboard during the passage. The wives and children of those who had been put to death were sold for slaves, and after this hard massacre, Pedro de Vera returned to his government of Canaria. On his arrival there, he caused all the Gomerans residing on the island to be seized in one night, amounting to about 200 men, women, and children, the men he put to death, and he sold the women and children as slaves. This must have caused some sort of public outcry within Spain. Uh, A bishop does complain to the king about it, who ordered that the seized Gomerans be returned and be repaid uh, by their owners. Um, The idea of this actually happening in practice, though, seems more dubious. Neither also was de Vera punished for these actions, I should say. Uh, Quite the opposite, in fact. He was recalled from his government uh, post to answer for the complaints. And And after that, he was given command of the expeditions in Granada and was made marshal and commissary for that war by the king, who appreciated the fact that de Vera knew well how to dislodge an enemy from strong and accessible places. And as the mountains of Granada were full of them, his majesty thought Pedro de Vera might be employed there to good purpose. So Pedro de Vera's conquistadoring career veered back to the Iberian Peninsula, and eventually he retired and died in Spain. Um, And meanwhile, one of his favorite captains, Alonso Ferdinando de Lugo, He, meanwhile, was not content with the well-watered, fertile lands which he'd won on the Gran Canaria, and he went to Spain, Masaya, to obtain from their majesties a grant of the conquest of Palma and Tenerife for himself. After getting that, he went to Seville to provide himself with the necessary ships, men, ammunition, and everything else necessary for the undertaking. Now, Galindo tells us that the Spaniards had long been baffled in their attempts at conquering Palma, where years earlier, Guillén Peraza had met his fate and was immortalized in song. Afterwards, his vassals continued to descend upon the island to make raids for cattle and slaves, but relations by the late 15th century had become a bit more peaceful. Well, at least till De Lugo and his men arrived on the 29th of September, 1490, and fixed camp. Galindo tells us that Alonso de Lugo fortified his landing place strongly before proceeding further into the country. 
After this, he made allies of the Guanche tribe on the southwest side of the island, who had long had good trading terms with the Spaniards on Hyro. De Lugo secured an alliance with them by offering them presents and promises for their support. And from there, he traveled to the northeast side of the island, where he met more resistance. Here, De Lugo found the inhabitants in arms. They would not be persuaded to submit to him either until he attacked them, killing some and taking many prisoners and returning to camp afterwards to refresh his troops. He did not wait there for long, and Alonso de Lugo soon set out for the last of the Guanche strongholds on Palma. The large hill where the Canarians were posted was difficult to get to. Galindo tells us de Lugo only succeeded in reaching the top because he was aided greatly by his native allies, which he'd obtained by means of the previous two outings, and who were of great assistance helping de Lugo and his men get up to the heights where the Canarians were posted. With this native help, Alonso had an opportunity of attacking them on more equal terms, which he did with great bravery, but could not force the passage and was obliged still to retreat. But the victory caused little elation amongst the people of Palma. That same night grew bitterly cold. Most of the old people, women, and children had been sent to the top of the mountain for security, and in the cold of that night were frozen to death. With this fact, and the idea of facing a continued siege by the Spaniards, the natives, led by a man named Tonife, agreed to surrender. But when they came down from the mountains, the Spaniards, still suspicious, fell upon them, and a great bloody skirmish ensued which ended in the death of captivity of all the natives. This happened on the 3rd of May, 1491. The conquest of Palma complete, Alonso de Lugo gathered his forces and sailed to Tenerife, taking with him as many troops as could be spared. Immediately afterwards, a palm, uh, on, a, on Palma, a rebellion began. So de Lugo sent a ship back with 30 Spaniards and some of the natives he trusted, and this was dispersed not without bloodshed. Afterwards, to strike terror in the natives, de Lugo caused the chiefs and ringleaders of the rebellion to be put to death. This severity had the desired effect, and so now de Lugo was able to concentrate on Tenerife, the last of the Free Guanche Islands. After the failed rebellion on Palma, many of the last holdouts, as many Guanche chose to do elsewhere, committed, su committed ritual suicide. Here on Palma, the chosen method most often was starvation. Without freedom, many of the Guanche there, it seemed, simply lost the will to live. Alonso de Lugo arrived on Tenerife on the 3rd of May, 1493. Along with 1,000 veterans and some horses, well-armed and equipped in order to subdue the island. It was a force mighty enough that the inhabitants merely questioned him when he and his men landed. They did not dare to attack it. When Alonso de Lugo was asked why he had come to Tenerife, he replied he had merely come to convert the natives to Christianity. His army marched through oh, across the island, capturing livestock without resistance, until finally the Guanche were ready to spring an attack. They were outmanned. The Guano team of Tenerife 
only commanded 300 warriors. In years past, like all the other islands, his, predece his predecessors would have commanded thousands. De Lugo, on the other hand, commanded 1,000 Spanish conquistadors, armored with horses and gunpowder. And in fact, De Lugo, you would assume, and his, the Spaniards would have thus had no trouble conquering Tenerife. But what Galindo describes gives us a very good idea of how the Guans remained free for so long, both on Tenerife and, in fact, all the islands. And earlier when we began, when we wondered what happened to that early Portuguese expedition, it gives us an idea of what happened to that and all the other expeditions that failed and perhaps were not counted. Let's, let's see. As the Spaniards were passing a narrow defile surrounded with high cliffs or mountains, 300 guanches lay in ambush. They gave a great shout and whistle and then fell on them with such fury that they put them entirely to the rout, for the Spaniards could make no use of their cavalry in that place on which they depended, nor could they avail themselves to the superiority of their numbers, so that there was no remedy but in flight. The Guanches pursued them closely and made great slaughter of the fugitives. The 300 Guanches, in fact, killed so many Spaniards that Galinda reports that during the battle of the Guanche, that during the battle, the Guanche king king reprimanded his brother because he stopped attacking. The king's brother replied that he was tired and had killed enough and that the others could do their work as butchers now. In this way, in this battle, the greater part of Alonso de Lugo's army perished. 600 conquistadors died. De Lugo himself narrowly escaped. In the battle, he was knocked off his horse by a blow with a stone on his mouth and which beat out some of his teeth. And as he lay on the ground, some guanches killed his horse and they would have killed him. But he was bravely defended by another conquistador whose name was Pedro Benitez the One-Eyed, just so you know, and who had a spare horse, which Alonso mounted and escaped with some of his troops onto the ships. The Spanish casualties might have been even higher, but after the retreat, Alonso found 90 of his men who had escaped by swimming and had saved themselves, at least temporarily, upon a rock in the sea. But once recollected, if you can believe it, mas aya, remember, Alonso and the others were undeterred enough that they attempted to land again, and in a second battle were defeated again, and another 100 Spaniards were killed from Galindo. Quite dispirited by this misfortunes, Alonso knew not what course to take, for he could not pretend to land again, having lost in the two battles upwards of 700 men. At length, he returned with the remains of his troops to Gran Canaria. Now, let me tell you that Tenerife would have certainly remained unconquered after this, but what happens next perfectly highlights the changes that have occurred to Guanche society as a result of disease. Galindo tells us that once upon a time, the king of Tenerife could call upon thousands of warriors, an army of size. But, as we see, disease had crippled the population just in, on Tenerife, just as it had on every other Canary Island population. And in contrast to the Guanche, though, who would have had trouble 
refilling the ranks of the army. The Spanish, having defeated the Portuguese and made peace, had no rivals in the Canaries and could focus their resources on the conquest of the remaining islands. Peace with Portugal, in fact, had come 10 years before. And since Spain had been granted the Canaries, and now with the death of Don Juan Rayon, the Spaniards had become much more organized, in no small part because of the greater investments being made in peace. Spanish and Genoan and other investment uh, in investors uh, who wished to invest in the sugar industry, um, their interest was high enough that Alonso de Lugo was able to gain more assistance from civilian merchants and other conquistadors in the Canaries and immediately recruited 600 more men and 50 more horses and after his defeat embarked straight away a second time for Tenerife. The fleet marched directly into the plains of the island, had a slight skirmish with the Guanches, and from thence proceeded in two divisions, and came upon an army of the Guanche with whom they had many encounters. Galindo tells us that the natives saw the number and good order of the Spaniards, and that notwithstanding the great blow they had just received, now returned in so short a time, with so formidable an army, that the Guanche began to think seriously of treating with them. Alonso de Lugo accepted the eventual surrender that occurred after this, and for the first time on the island of Tenerife, Guanche, Guanches became Christians, coming to be baptized. Alonso, having quieted the natives, settled the government on a regular plan and went in quest of a, popular, pro, of a proper place for building a city. At length he found such a spot and began construction on the 25th of July, 1495, leaving his people there to erect a fort. And now this is basically where the Chronicles of Galindo end. And where does that leave us? I mean, for one thing, as we can see, the peace treaty between Portugal and Spain was pretty bad news for the Guanche. Um, at a glance, this might seem counterintuitive, but once the war was over, uh, the Spanish were finally free to devote larger amounts of resources to the conquests of the Canaries. Simultaneously, the Guanche were struggling with radical population loss uh, via the introduction of diseases uh, that they did not fully understand how to fight, uh, really. And with that said, though, once the war with Portugal ended in 1479, Ferdinand and Isabella still, as we see, found it nearly as difficult as previous conquistadors to advance the conquest. Under royal auspices, it took six years of unremitting warfare to reduce Gran Canaria into submission. The conquest of La Palma was not completed until 1492. The conquest of Tenerife, not until 1495 or 1496. Now, one person I didn't mention yet, who I probably should have, is Alonso de Quintan Quintanilla, an official of the Treasury, who was given responsibility of the organization of the con uh, conquest way back in 1480. Now, Quintanilla did all sorts of things to fund the conquest, including mortgaging royal booty from previous conquests, and very importantly for the future, uh, making deals with Italian and chiefly Genoese capitalists, such that the final conquests of La Palma and Tenerife 
were financed by ad hoc companies in which financiers and conquistadors engaged to share in profits. Uh, and then Kitania became the richest merchant in the Canaries by doing this. His interests focused mostly in sugar and dye stuffs, and of course, uh, the trade in slaves, which worked on these plantations. And so we're going to keep his name in mind, uh, though, because he will also become one of the chief financiers of Columbus. And there's going to be a considerable overlap between the men involved in the final Canarian conquest, and also I should mention the conquest of Granada, and the start of the Spanish conquest in the Americas. I mean, these are all the same assholes. Now, before we end this episode, now I want to state that the Guanche aren't just totally gone after the conquest of Alonso de Lugo. They're still around, but they have, at this point, lost their independence. They will continue uh, to work for and occasionally rebel against Spanish rule, but so too will disease and mistreatment continue to ravage their population. In addition, by the early 16th century, the pressure by the sugar financiers slowly brings an end to the previously established reservations that some Guanche tribes were able to secure, such as uh, Gunache Semeden in, on the Grand Canaria. And in the end, we see that maybe it was the hardliners who argued against Don Fernandino, who might have been right all along. Once the Spanish defeated the Canarians, they did betray them, revoking treaties under flimsy pretenses in ways that unfortunately would be repeated again and again in history in the Americas. Now, in an earlier episode, uh, and this is why, in an earlier episode, I made the claim that the chief export of the European conquistador was human misery. Now, on the Canary Islands, we see that on full display. I mean, how messed up is that? Where you learn a story about the past and, and you, you have to wonder whether the people who killed themselves were right to do so. I, I, the fact that that's even a question would you, is difficult. And if you think that it shouldn't be a question, I, I need to remind you that we're talking about people for whom their families may have been gone, and their entire little way of life was disappearing, and everyone they know. And that uh, continued life meant a life of slavery, if not just outright torture and death. So, anyway, I don't want to leave us on too low a note, because, so let's talk about next episode, because next episode we're going to zoom back out from the Canaries, and we are going to spend some time here, because after all, the episode is entitled The World of Christopher Columbus. The main action will take place in the Atlantic and on the African coast. Now, because even though Portugal and Spain settled their differences regarding the ownership of the Canary Islands in 1480, the rivalry between these two nations is just getting heated up. So to finish our opening series, we're going to take a dive into the late 15th century equivalent of the 20th century space race. Because to do that, and if we look at it that way, that's going to better under help us better understand why Ferdinand and Isabella are so eager 
to finance Columbus's foolhardy voyage in the first place. At any rate, I look forward to speaking with you again, and until then, may you all live long and prosper. And what I say, the captain is a tyrant and I no longer obey. I'm sick of taking orders from the madman in command. So let's drop him on an island and leave him in the sand. Cause it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. And I'll take it over the ship. It's a mutiny. What's happening here? You're no longer in control And we're drinking up your beer This is now a democratic Egalitarian pirate ship So enjoy your trip Cause it's a mutiny It's a mutiny This is a mutiny And now we're taking over the ship